welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 94. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and so far, my co-host with me tonight is... Dave Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. Hey, buddy. Welcome, sir. Thank you, sir. It feels like a long time since you and I have talked. It does. I know you've done a lot. <laughs> yeah, it feels like I've done a lot. In fact, as we're recording this, I actually recorded episode 200 of Movie Podcast Weekly over there. Wow, so, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, so if people like, you know, all kinds of genres, in addition to horror, then um, check out episode 200. It's a pretty humorous show. But for tonight's show, Dr. Shock, this is one of our Frankensteinian episodes, and we have oh. a lot of great surprises for the listeners. I think you're going to enjoy the variety tonight. So Dr. Shock and I are going to start off the show by talking about a number of things. We're going to bring you a few horror movie reviews and talk about some horror news, just like the folks like out there. And then we have Wolfman Josh and the Sci-Fi Podcast hosts bringing you a Ghostbuster Versus episode where they compare and contrast and review the original Ghostbusters and the new Ghostbusters. And Dr. Shock and I are not in that segment. But then later, at the end of the show, Wolfman Josh and I, we get together after seeing Lights Out, and we meet at a Dairy Queen, and we talk about all kinds of stuff and review Lights Out at that Dairy Queen. So this is actually going to be a very fun episode for you. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. How's that sound to you, Dr. Shock? It sounds great. It's, it does. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, the thoughts on Ghostbusters and on Lights Out. And I, as we were saying just off air, I'm looking forward to once the blog winds down to being able to contribute to these newer movie reviews. Yeah, I bet you uh, are. I bet you miss I do. I miss, like, like we were saying, there were times I, I was looking through my tickets. I save all my tickets, as I mentioned in our interview that we had done. And there were some years I had like 50 tickets in there. And I don't even think I have half that many since I started the blog. <laughs> I just don't get to go to the theater anymore, unfortunately. And it's uh, yeah. a little bit depressing, but I don't have much more to go. And then I'll be able to pick it up again. Well, I'm happy for you. I just saw a new horror. This is breaking news, everybody. A new horror thriller by M. Night Shyamalan, written and directed, and it's called Split. This is breaking news. I just found this, and it totally derailed me, and I had to see what the heck, because if everybody knows... I actually am an M. Night Shyamalan apologist sometimes. This is slated for uh, January of 2017. It says it's a horror thriller starring James McAvoy. And the premise is Kevin, a man with at least 23 different personalities, is compelled to abduct three teenage girls as they are held captive. A final personality called the Beast begins to materialize. Oh. <laughs> Written and directed M. Night Shyamalan. Wow. So let me see if we got a rating on this yet, because as we know on this podcast, this is something that, you know, you and I, I think we take that into account. Yeah. Anyways, uh, the trailer is here and um, maybe I'll just play it right now. Is that okay with you, Dave? Sure. Hey, pardon me, sir. I think you have the wrong car. Thank you. 
was sent to get you for a reason. There's a flower on the pillows, a flower in the bathroom. Like, we're important. The only chance we have is if all three of us go crazy on this guy. Who is that? Maybe she can help us. We're here! Help us! We're here! Don't worry. He's not allowed to touch you. He knows what you're here for. He listens to me. So um, we just played a portion of the trailer there, and I, I will use some discretion. Now, typically, M. Night Shyamalan is very careful, as you know, Dave, about mm-hmm. what he puts in his trailer. So I wasn't as worried to watch, but actually, I didn't go all the way in it. I just I kind of shut it off after I had a real feel for it. And, okay. And so, uh, Doc, I'll give you the honors. Uh, first thoughts on the trailer for Split. Interesting. I, I'm looking forward to seeing this if anything james mcavoy uh looks to give an excellent i mean just just from what i saw in the trailer um the different personalities that he brings out i think what is this (laughs) is a guy with 23 personalities yes yes correct that he the just the the few that they show you in the trailer are it's very, it's very interesting, you know, that, that it, 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 he's, it goes from, from a child to a, I guess, to a, to an adult, to <laughs> what they call the beast. Yeah. Um, wow. It's, it, no, I'm excited to see it. I mean, just based on the trailer. Yeah. I mean, now, I, of course, M. Night Shyamalan, I don't know, maybe uh, you'll you keep that in the back of your head. Which one, is, which M. Night Shyamalan is this? You know, <laughs> is this from The Visit, which he's done recently? Which is good. Or, you know, the older, which, yeah, of the older movies. Or is this, you know, The Happening? Yeah. Well, another. And Last Airbender and those other travesties. The thing is, Wolfman Josh and I, we, we think he's back. I mean, we think that with The Visit, we think that the, that signaled the return of M. Night Shyamalan as we know him i think he's getting back to the basics back to what he knows works and i'm seeing that in this trailer like uh, first of all the casting of um james mcavoy is excellent because he's such a a versatile actor i think he's Mm -hmm. gonna i mean there's one character he portrays in case people aren't seeing um the trailer whatsoever there's a little surprise reveal kind of Right in the beginning, when when the girls yeah. are like, "Who is that?" and and then right, and, and that's very creepy and unsettling. And also, I'm I get a vibe from this that's kind of along the lines of Ten Cloverfield Lane. I mean, I feel a little bit of that yeah. in here too. Yeah, you do. You get that. You do get that feeling. Absolutely. So, anyways, I'm sorry to totally derail the whole thing, but you know, when you pull up IMDb, yeah, hey. they show you the new trailers. And that was breaking news for me right there. So, um, that's that's listed as 2017. Yeah, it comes out January 20th, and I will be there. So, back to what we were talking about before. I'm sorry to be kind of, um, (laughs) like all over the place tonight. That's okay. Like I have 23 different personalities or something, but (laughs) sometimes I jokingly call you Dr. Schlock because what Mm -hmm. the, what the listeners around here, maybe if you're a newer listener, you're not aware, but, um, Dave is a veritable encyclopedia of the cinema. We all admire him and look up to him for that. And he appreciates and loves all kinds of movies. And in many cases, I've found even the bad movies. And so, There is a very interesting little horror flick I want to talk to you about. 
And let me just tell you how this came to be. It may even be later in this episode, or it was in the previous episode. I'm very mixed up because we record this all out of order. I think it was <laughs> our, our previous release, Dave. I don't remember exactly what I said, Dave, to be perfectly honest with you, but oh. I think I referred to the cavern in a derogatory way. And I was actually in my mind thinking about that film, The Cave, from 2005. Do you remember that one by any chance? I don't know that I've seen The Cave, to be honest. I remember it. I okay. remember, and I'm, I think I believe I've seen a trailer for it. Right. Well, for the listeners out there, just so everybody has, um, I guess, a little bit of context in this. Dave, in 2005, we saw some spelunking type horror movies. Like we saw The Descent, which is the best cave yes. horror movie of all. Uh-huh. And also there was another one, which was a PG-13 horror movie called The Cave from 2005. Uh-huh. And that was the one directed by Bruce Hunt and it and starred um, like Cole Hauser and Piper Parabo. And, and I tell you, that film looks amazing. Like the, I mean, I don't know what the budget was, but it like as far as the look of it, I mean, it looks really polished and produced, but it's, it's difficult to f- film inside of a cave or environs that look like a cave. And, and they do it. And it's also kind of beautiful, too. I mean, they do some really nice things with water and with lighting in that movie. But otherwise, it's terrible. I try to watch The Cave over and over again. Um, I, I've probably tried it three different times, at least two, thinking, you know what? I I will like this movie better if I watch it. And, and I just can't make myself like it because it is just a a pale, pale comparison to The Descent. It's not even oh. close to The Descent. But wow. but it is like this creature feature, you know, uh, beastly freaks down in a cave movie. But um, the descent is far superior. So I guess it was in the previous episode, Dave. I was referring to this movie, The Cave, and I said The Cavern, which I felt really bad about because I'm like, I realized it in my editing. I'm like, oh, I, I was I was dissing on The Cavern, actually meaning to say The Cave. And so I better go see the cavern in case I need to set that straight. So um, right now I'm going to bring you a little tiny review of the cavern. Deep in the desert of Central Asia, in an unmapped cave. It's a long way down. Seven explorers will uncover something dark. I can't explain it. I don't understand. Something deadly. What are you doing? Something horrific. Descend. Have you heard of the cavern, Dave? I can't say I have. Okay. Well, this one get. I mean, it's it's very heavily derided. I mean, people are extremely critical of this movie. It was um, written and directed by Olatandi Osin Somni. If you say so. <laughs> yeah, I guess. He looks like an actor, but I, I don't know. He's familiar to me. But you would know him. The horror community out there might know him because he was the director of a horror movie called The Fourth Kind. That was actually oh, okay. the movie he did after The Cavern. And then after The Fourth Kind, he did Evidence. And that's that one. Evidence. That's the, that one. I yeah. 
That one I know. Yeah, like it, we actually talked about it on this podcast like a little I while back. Think, I don't think you liked it as much as you and Josh. I I jo- yeah, Josh and I enjoyed that one. I don't think you were quite the fan of it. Yeah, and that's where the de- the detective hunts down a killer using video footage. Yes. Shot by the yes. victims at this massacre uh-huh. at an abandoned gas station. So that was evidence. So this is the director we're talking about. So I mean, we know from seeing those films that he has he has some ability. I think now uh-huh. I will say with the cavern though, um, man, this thing gets a lot of grief on there. And it was originally called Within, um, with capital I N Within, and then I guess. When Sony or whoever got a hold of it, the marketing people wanted to to have more appeal and kind of ride the coattails of the descent and the cave, and so they named it the cavern. And in fact, it does actually take place down in this cavern. And uh-huh. and so the premise to this, Dave, is you got these uh, people, a group of people that go. They're like professional spelunkers. They go to Kazakhstan. Have you ever? Known of a horror movie set in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan. Yeah. Mm, no, not. <laughs> so that's where they go, and it's. Yeah, I seriously doubt that that's where they actually are, right? You know, but um, this is pretty low budget. That's like I think it was 150 grand or something. I read on this, like it's a low budget film, but they got a really diverse group of people. Yeah, it was shot. It was shot in Los Angeles. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> and it does. It kind of looks. I could, you know, you could tell that maybe it kind of has that look to it. But anyway, they spent a lot of time down in this cave. And I tell you, the biggest problem with this, I think the reason why people, um, because it's basically a very similar premise to um, The Descent, except um, instead of having like tons and tons of these like subterranean beastly freak creatures, you have one beastly freak or one creature being who is doing the killing and it actually it reminds me a tiny bit just i I don't know what it is about it but it it reminds me a little bit of that movie that i borrowed from you that time it's called uh humongous oh humongous yeah yeah from the 80s -hmm. yeah it's all i like i i I wonder like if there was some kind of like inspiration there but anyway you've got this group of people and they're they're somewhat ethnically diverse so i think that's admirable and of course they have um all kind of baggage because there was a very sad unfortunate event that happened in the past it was a previous caving accident and so that haunts them and that comes up quite a bit in the movie um they actually talk about they try to get a little bit philosophical and they talk about um religion in this movie which i think is kind of interesting i mean i i pick up on the efforts but but dave the problem is it really doesn't show you anything because the cinematography down in the cave is uh-huh. so bad that there are lots of like just pitch black screens of just blackness and you only hear the soundtrack now i suspect dave that that was intentional Maybe, you know, he wanted to make right. use of the sound, kind of like in the movie Signs, when you hear, you know, all the aliens outside pounding, and like uh-huh. what you hear sometimes and what you imagine is there is actually scarier. Well, that's not really the case in this, because you can't see anything. It's long periods of time where it's pitch blackness, and man, it is very um, alienating to the audience, and so 
that that was a huge mistake and just really regrettable. But what I will tell you is where this movie goes in the end, like what they finally reveal to you uh, is <laughs> is really, um, I, I think, interesting. Now, people, I hate this. Like I, I read in the, the comments where people hate, you know, the reveal and, and what we learn in the end of the film. I have an IMDb rating is 2.8. Yeah, yeah, like a lot of people hate this, and and I'm kind of torn about something. Like we typically we don't spoil things on horror movie podcasts, but I just wonder if um, I mean, because here's the thing, I can't recommend that people even try this movie because it's like the whole movie up to the last five minutes is just really difficult to even get through because. Okay. Because you're watching so much of the black screen. And I mean, they try to do things with the dialogue and with the characters. But I mean, it's still like a, a poor man's version of The Descent that way. And when there are attacks from this this creature or being, you know, it doesn't show us anything. And, and, and like they do really quick cuts and they like jerk the camera around Paul Greengrass style. Like it's some kind of born ultimatum. Like, like oh. and you can't see anything that's happening and it's ridiculous. You have no, no context for the geography of the action and the horror. So that's the problem. Now you get down to the last five minutes and then I think it gets kind of interesting. And um, let me just tell you, at least what I thought was going to be the reveal. And this is not the reveal. Cause I, cause when I read that people hated the reveal, I'm like, okay, what could it be? Well, that satellite story that they talked about earlier about the sad thing that happened is they actually lost, you know, one of their friends, this girl, I guess drowned in a cave. And then they didn't know what happened to her. Like they never found her body or recovered it or something. And so I thought, wow, wouldn't it be weird if this is kind of like one of those, um, what was that terrible movie that was all shot on Skype? I ended up doing a hard edit there and because um, we were um, kind of floundering trying to find it. it. It was called Unfriended, right? Yes. Okay, that's it. Yes. Okay. Because you remember how in Unfriended, the premise was this girl who died like a year earlier comes back on her anniversary and she's like haunting them through Skype and yes. blah, blah, blah. That's like the worst movie. Anyway, this, <laughs> so this is like on the two year anniversary of that girl's death. And I'm like, what if somehow this girl is the creature? Cause she's been down in this subterranean cave. Uh, like, you know, it was a different cave system, but I'm like, uh -huh. maybe that's why people thought it was dumb. It's like, how did she get in this other cave? Well, it's not that, but, um, so, I don't know. Like, what I what I want to do? Should I give a big spoiler alert and just kind of talk about the end of this movie? Because honestly, yeah, I would, if you're gonna, yeah, give, you can give a spoiler alert. Just I don't know, um, and then maybe throw that in the notes. Say hey, if you don't want to, okay. if you don't want to have this movie spoiled, yeah, you know. because I'm not out to destroy um, horror films unless no. it's unfriended but right. <laughs> what what I am out to do is kind of explore the cinema and I think that this is a very interesting um, film because I want to ask you about this ending so here is um, major plot spoiler I'm going to reveal the ending 
to the cavern from 2005. So if you're going to end up watching this to experience it for yourself, then, um, you know, look in our show notes and see when to skip ahead to after this review. Okay. So are you okay if I talk to you about this and spoil it for you, Dave? Sure. Okay. All right. So you get down to the very end of the movie and everybody's dead except for the last two girls. And then they get overtaken by this creature being thing. And then like they wake up and they're kind of dressed like, um, well, for lack of a better word, cave women. <laughs> you know, they have been put in this primitive clothing made of like animal fur and they're starving and they notice that there's food or something and they go to eat it. And of course it's one of their friends. And so they, they, um, they realize that they're in this little den of this creature that's been hunting them and they find these old pictures. Well, it turns out there was this family in this airplane that had crashed there and the parents died and the little boy survived and so he he um became a feral basically and turned into this kind of creature a la humongous um where he's just like this killer creature and he's just feral out in the wilderness okay and it, and so that's kind of that but but what's noteworthy about this film is the very last scene is you know, he comes back, we, you know, they reveal that this is that boy and now he's this freak and he takes off this skull mask thing that he's wearing and his face is all burnt and stuff from the crash. And um, he starts killing the one girl while at the same time, Dave, he starts assaulting the other girl, raping, okay? And then in, in the mid-rape, they cut and it goes to the Written and directed by oh, Ola okay. Tande Osunami, right? Uh, and so right. a lot of people flipped out and lost their minds that for um, apparently for I don't know shock value presumably that they would go all the way into you know a rape scene and then and then cut the movie off right there in the middle of it. What do you think of that as a filmmaker's choice? What do you think about the director taking you there and then being like, there you go, <laughs> see you later? <laughs> like, What do you think you, about that? You know what? I don't know, because just hearing you describe it, it's an interesting choice to do it that way. <laughs> yes. I don't know. It's hard to put it. It's hard to, like, imagine it now. You know, I, 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 it's almost like I, I want to just see the movie just to see how that part is done. Yeah, or see how the whole thing is done up to that point, and and then and then just see. I mean, people have a problem with that they didn't finish the scene. Is that what it is? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the criticism I heard. I mean, there's this one guy who's really wacky. He does a, a video review of it. You could look it up. I was actually gonna quote him and play a clip from his video review on this podcast, but he's he's so acerbic in his presentation because he's. He's performing. It's a little bit um, over the top for my tastes. And so, mm-hmm. therefore, I, just, I opted not to subject the listeners to it. Although, I do think he's somewhat funny. Anyway, this guy on here, like, he, he goes nuts. And his complaint was, okay, if you're going to go that far in a film and depict, like, the, the lowest, like, most severe base act, you know, that a human could commit. Like if you're going to do that for like a film and, and really go like cross the line into exploitation, like, and then just cut it off. Like, it's just like almost like you pull that bag of tricks 
poke your viewers in the eye and then like run, you know, I I guess he felt like they went really far for not much of a payoff. It wasn't like he had a genuine like reason to do it like thematically, like he wasn't justified in doing it. He just did it for shock value. Well, you know, it's, I don't know because if, they wanted to see, did they want to see, I mean, I, I understand, okay, it's a bit exploitative, mm-hmm. but did they want to see it finish? Yeah, I don't, I don't know, honestly, because for me, I'll, I'll just tell you where I'm coming from, because I, I wanted to kind of hear what you thought. I, I think that um, the ending, you know, the reveal, I don't think the reveal's that bad, honestly. I think it's kind of cool, and, uh-huh. and I think that that choice is shocking and everything, and um, it didn't offend me. And so I, I think that, I mean, I probably would have recommended this movie for people if the first, like, you know, 70 minutes of it weren't so dark. I mean, it's, uh-huh. it's not only is it shaky cam, but it's shaky cam and pitch blackness. In like, the dark, right? <laughs> right. So it's like, you know, if it weren't for that, I mean, I think it would have been decent. But, um, you know, I'm still coming in. I got to come in at a four on this. I mean, I'm still calling it a void, but I do think uh-huh. it's intriguing and it's interesting. And honestly, a lot of people, in fact, most people would say this is the bottom rung of those three cave movies from 2005. Uh-huh. But for me, Dave, I actually prefer this over the cave. I think uh-huh. the cavern has more merit to it. And I know that people will freak out when they hear that, but I, I just can't stand the cave very uh-huh. much so anyway um of course neither of these even is worth <laughs> like anything compared Anywhere to the, near the descent yes yeah. exactly so anyway absolutely but i'm saying on the cavern from 2005 i'm saying it's a four and i'm saying avoid okay okay so there there's my okay, uh, there's an, it is an interesting choice at the uh at the end there, though. Yes, sir. Yes, and sir. I don't know. I don't know. I think you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. I mean, you know, these are the characters you've been, well, that you're supposed to have been following. I guess you couldn't really see them um, through right. most of the film. You know, <laughs> the, the last two survivors there, but yeah, right. interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yes. It's 1962. It's Halloween. I wish that was as weird as you. Thanks. There's nothing wrong with the town of Willow Point Falls. But a powerful imagination can't cure. The London Bridge crumpled under the monster's huge lizard feet. That's impossible. Or is it? I know you've got kind of an oldie but a goodie that you wanted to talk about for us, so why don't you go into that, Dr. Shock? All right, I do. Uh, this is one. Uh, interestingly enough, it was recommended to me by uh, Joel Robertson. Yeah. Our fellow podcaster. And I'm trying to remember when. I think probably, you know, I talk to Joel every so often. I think it might be two to three years ago he recommended this one to me. And I'm just now getting around to watching it. Um, it's called Lady in White from 1988, uh, written and directed by Frank. La Loggia, uh, and it has uh, stars Lucas Haas, Len Carew, and Alex Rocco. And what the movie is, it's set up in the year uh, 1962. Uh, it's a small small town uh, in New York called, uh, or I'm assuming it's New York. I, I, I'm not sure if they touch on that or not, but 
I'm pretty sure it is. I know it was filmed in New York uh, called Willow Point Falls, upstate New York. I'm thinking Willow Point Falls. And it, it's about uh, a young man named uh, Frankie Scarletti, played by Lucas Haas. You know, he, he, he comes from a good home. He lives with his father, who's played by Alex Rocco. He's got his grandparents there, his older brother. Um, the mother, it looks like, had passed away recently from an illness. Uh, so she's not in the picture anymore. And uh, there are other people, like um, his father's uh, uh, co-workers stop in, one of whom is uh, a man they call Uncle Phil. That's Lent Carew. Uh, the best friend, um, you know, they, uh, the family uh, adopted uh, Uncle Phil at a young age when his parents had passed away. Um, so it's, it's a close-knit family. And, um, you know, we follow Frankie as he goes off to school, and it's Halloween. So he's kind of, uh, you know, he's kind of excited about Halloween. He goes into school. He's written a story. You know, this is, I, you get the feeling this is definitely almost like a, a a dramatic biopic of sorts, maybe of the director, the writer director himself, because this is little kid. He writes, a, he wrote a story about a creature, and he reads it to the class, you know. And they're just sort of having a party for Halloween. Well, he, um, these two kids play a, a prank on him, and they take his ski cap that his father had just given him, and they, you know, they throw it into what is this here? What it's, it's like a cloakroom. You know, where all of, they keep all their coats and everything, where all the students keep their coats. And, and they kind of throw it into the corner there. So when he's outside, they say, hey, where's your hat? And he's like, oh, I left it inside. I guess I'll get it later. And like, oh, no, why don't you get it now? So he goes into the cloakroom to get it. And these kids sneak in behind him and lock him in this cloakroom and then run off. They're basically leaving him there for the night is what it is. All right. So he's sitting in there um, and things are going on. And he's sort of remembering his... Uh, you know, his mother, and he's not too happy. Then all of a sudden, it hits 10 o'clock. Well, the spirit of a young girl suddenly enters this cloakroom and is talking to somebody. And she's singing a song, and she's talking to somebody. I know that's a song you really like. She looks up, she happens to see Frankie, and then starts saying, I don't want to be here. Well, we watch as this girl is then killed. Um, wow. It turns out she's just reliving this every night around 10 o'clock. Uh, at least that's what it seems like in the movie. Just reliving her own murder, which happened to occur in that cloakroom. Well, then something else happens while Frankie is in there. The door is kicked in. Now, he's up in a corner. He's hiding at this point. Okay. And he's a little petrified of having just seen, you know, this this ghost and this girl killed in front of him. Well, a man walks in and starts unscrewing the grate uh, on the bottom like he's trying to get something. There have been a series in this town over the last decade, 10 children murdered, the first of whom was that young girl, Melissa. We find out uh, her name is. And we start meeting some of the other families, uh, this one family in particular who have lost a child. Well, this this uh, custodian is arrested. He has a wife and children of his own. And, you know, the whole time the father, Frankie's father, you know, happy to have him back, wondering if this custodian really is the guilty party. But, you know, the, the, this is also being set in the 60s. We get to see a little bit of, like, of um, um, you know, the early uh, racial unrest because the sheriff basically says, well, look, he's the perfect scapegoat. He's black mm. uh, is how it's put. Um, but anyway, where the movie goes from there is Frankie then uh, receive, he's visited by Melissa on a regular basis now, almost nightly. And she interacts with him until 10 o'clock, at which point then she starts to relive her own murder again. So 
at the same time, there's another legend that down by the, the you know, by the, um, there's these, these cliffs that, that lead into the, um, you know, into the ocean below, um, or the, these cliffs above the ocean, that a lady in white walks there. Well, you know, you start to realize that the lady in white is probably the mother that uh, Melissa is looking for. So Frankie's uh, trying to figure out, you know, to try to get these two together. Well, at the same time, we start to realize that, okay, well, this gentleman is not the murderer. Um, and they start to piece together who the actual killer is. Now, one of the interesting things, even though it's, you know, it's a very, it's sort of a dark premise. This movie was, you can tell by the way it was, it was put together that it was sort of geared towards kids. Mm -hmm. Sort of a, sort of a kid's horror movie. Right. Um, not only from Frankie's, you know, perspective, a lot of it's told. Um, there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of humor in it, uh, not at the beginning, you know, sort of corny things like, you know, um, you know, falling off his bike into cement and you know, things like that. Um, uh, the grandfather always trying to sneak away and catch a smoke and the grandmother always finding him, um, you know, things along that line, those lines. So it is geared towards kids in, in, in a lot of respects. Um, and as I said, it does get into, um, you know, the time period and the, the early 1960s, you know, with the civil rights movement and whatnot, um, uh, and just how it, it just touches on that a little bit too. Not as much. The, the majority of the story is, is Frankie trying to deal with, um, you know, this, this young girl and trying to, trying to help her out. Um, you know, the, the comedy does get a little bit at times, you know, just because it's sort of thrown in there and it's for the kids, you know, and I think kids might enjoy it a little more than an adult. Well, but it's, it gets a little bit overdone. Not much. It doesn't really detract from the story. And maybe kids won't, but anybody who's sort of experienced with these kind of movies will figure out who the killer is. Mm -hmm. I'd say probably in the first act, right? You'll be able to piece together who the real killer is. <laughs> um, but it didn't. It, it still didn't ruin the movie. It, I still enjoyed the film. Um, one thing I will say though is that okay, it is geared towards kids, but this is an '80s film geared towards kids. You know, this came out in 1988, so there are going to be some things in there that you would not see in a children's movie today. There is some some language, uh, and even more so, though, the scene in the cloakroom is very strong, very intense. All right, so you really have to, if you decide that you, you do want to sit down, maybe watch this with your with your kids. You've got to know them enough to say, hey, are they going to be able maybe at least check that scene out first mm -hmm. to see if, if you think it's something that they're going to, you know, be able to handle. Right. Um, but it's it's a good movie. I thought it was well made. Um, I liked uh, Lucas Haas as um, the star of this. He's usually one of those one of those. I know he was in Testament. Um, he's one of those actors where you've seen him before as a kid. Right. Yeah. But not necessarily. And oh, and oh, he was in Witness too. I'm pretty sure it's a little kid from Witness as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought he was good, and of course you have Alex Rocco, and you have the other story going uh, stories going on. Um, I thought they captured the time period pretty no, no. well. You don't buy me out; I buy you out. Yeah, yes. <laughs> right. That's what you're there. Alex Rocco from from The Godfather. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. Uh, absolutely. That that great role that he had is uh, <gasps> so memorable. With Mo Green. Scenes. Mo Green is in like two scenes, but uh, really memorable. Amazing. Um, 
who we do actually I think we just lost him within the last year or so. Alex Rocco just recently passed away, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I would give this probably a. Uh, I'm going to go with a six point five. Okay. And I'll put it as a rental. I think it's it's worth checking out. Um, again, though, just you know, like I said, know your kids before you're going to sit down and watch them, or or check it out first, you know, by yourself. Yes. You'll see how it definitely had uh, that sort of a younger viewer mentality, that that sort of approach to the film. Uh, you'll see that as you're watching it. Um, but again, it is from a different time period. So there are things that if it were to be geared towards kids today, they would probably have to remove some things or edit some things. Yes, sir. Um, which is a little bit of shame, I guess, that, that we've gotten to that point. But whatever, that's for another show. So, the, so yeah, I would I would guys 6.5 and I call it I'd say a rental. Definitely, you know, something that I would recommend renting. OK. All right. And uh, our friend Joel Robertson from the uh, Retro Movie Geek podcast and Forgotten mm-hmm. Flicks. He he really likes this one, I remember, too, right? As you said. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, had, he had recommended it to me. And he, he had, um, had the sort of, without going too deep into spoilers, had touched on the um, the cloakroom scene mm-hmm. as something that was you know particularly memorable to him. And I could see why. I could see, like, if I had seen this when it came out in 1988, I was a little older then, but it still would have stuck with me. I got you. You okay. know, and uh, it was something I think that it played on cable um, for a lot of people there. Yeah, you know, that's where a lot of a lot of people first experienced the movie. Obviously, was was on cable because I don't think it made much of a splash when it was released in the theater. Dave, so there are some developments right now in the horror community. There's a lot of buzz, and um, I get frustrated sometimes with a podcast schedule, especially a bi-weekly podcast schedule, and especially one that comes out late sometimes, because it's really hard to stay up on uh, the breaking news. For example, with this news, this is something that I was excited to talk about in this episode, because... I actually saw this particular trailer that we're going to be discussing in front of Lights Out, and I was really pumped. And then there's been talk already in the in the message boards, and I think that's great. I, I know Josh posted some really good stuff in the previous episode. But yeah, there is this trailer for a film called The Woods. And when I saw it, okay, I, I, I had seen the posters for this, and I'm uh-huh. like, okay, you got a creepy movie set in the woods. And then when you actually watch this teaser trailer, they play um, Every Breath You Take, right? Yes. Is that what it is? A really neat cover of that. And then you've got all these very, I guess, superlative, these huge quotes that flash on the screen and in front during this trailer, okay? I took screenshots of these so I could tell you. So a guy named Joshua Rotkopf from Time Out New York, he said, a nightmare of classic proportions of this. Okay, and then um, Brad Miska from Bloody Disgusting said, a new beginning for horror films, Dave. 
And then that same guy from Bloody Disgusting, Brad Miska, said, one of the scariest movies ever made. (laughs) And I understand. Like, here's the thing. I'm not poking fun that much because I've said that these kind of things about movies myself yeah, you, on this we, podcast. We, we, we all, we're all uh, sort of yeah. under hyperbole from time to time. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, well, I mean, and, and who knows? Maybe it is. I mean, I haven't seen it and may, I hope it is. But And then Jimmy O from JoeBlow.com says, a truly terrifying cinematic experience. Okay. So, you know, the teaser trailer looked good. This film comes out on September 16th, so we don't have long to wait. And then what we found out here at Comic-Con just a few days ago is that this new Adam Wingard film that was called The Woods is actually Blair Witch. Oh. 2016. What I get from IMDb is... After discovering a video showing what he believes to be his sister's experiences in the cursed woods of the Blair Witch, Blaine and a group of friends head to the forest in search of his lost sibling. Okay, so it is a sequel. Yeah, it's a sequel. But you know what? I suspect a little bit, Dave, that it's going to be along the lines of um, The Thing, where uh-huh. where it was kind of a, a sequel, but at the same time a little bit of a remake as well. Well, the, well, the thing was a well a prequel. I I know what you're saying. Yeah, sort of a, with with the way that with the monsters and so forth. Right. Yeah, well, that was technically yes. a prequel. That's true. Yes. But yes. yeah, I mean, I, you know how films now they they're kind of doing this clever thing where it it serves as like an homage, but it's also a sequel and it's also a remake. It's uh-huh. it's like multifaceted. I know what you're saying, yes. But I don't want to learn too much about it. And in fact, my opinion of this is I'm a little bit perturbed. This bait and switch thing where they were calling it the woods. And then they do this thing where they tell us a month ahead of time. It's actually Blair Witch. Just make it be Blair Witch, but call it the woods. And I'm not saying it in like a jerky way, Dave. It's just that I want to be surprised. Does that marketing campaign bother you? I know I'm always well, they had a very interest. They had an interesting marketing campaign, if you remember, for the original Blair Witch. Mm-hmm. Yes. When it came out, you know, it's real. This is this is real footage. This is something you know that that happened, and the actors were going to, I think, stay hidden for a while. And so, I don't know. Do, do you think maybe it just kind of goes hand in hand with the whole Blair Witch thing to just just do it sort of in a, in, a, in a unique and maybe not even unique, but just a just a sort of interesting way to sort of drum up discussion and so forth, like we're doing now. Yeah, exactly. The fact that it's called Blair Witch, the name alone is Uh going to get them a lot of ticket sales. It's going to have a good box office. Among horror fans, though, I mean, because if you remember, we are are now 17 years removed from the original Blair Witch. Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, a lot of the, the younger crowd are not going to have any connection with that unless they're horror fans. That's true. I loved it when it was just called The Woods, personally. Uh-huh. And maybe part of that is because The Village was going to be just called The Woods. I don't know if you remember that little fact. No, but, I, I do not. But I, love, I do not remember that. I love The Village, speaking of M. Night the village, Shyamalan. The Village, yes. The Village is going back to, you know, to M. Night again. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you on that. I liked The Village. I didn't like it as much as some of his earlier films, but I was a fan of it. I didn't see that twist coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, stuff. knowing it's an M Night movie, you're expecting a twist at this point because it was his fourth film. Mm-hmm. You don't, but you don't know what it's going to be. And I, I kind of like that one. So it's interesting. I didn't know that one was going to be called uh, 
The Woods. Yeah, it was going to be called The Woods at one point. And then there was like a 2006 film called The Woods. It was like a horror mystery thriller thing. And it seems like there, a kind of a, I mean, I remember, you know, Don't Go Into the Woods. Yeah. But back in that whole Don't era in the 80s where you got a lot of the, you know, Don't Go in the Basement, Don't Answer the Phone. Um, right. And I remember Don't Go in the Woods slasher film from back then so yeah i think just just the woods i bet i bet there's a, a number of movies seems to be almost as popular as like the black cat yeah about 15 exactly. movies called the black cat over time <laughs> yeah well i mean the woods are scary and and that's why i love that title actually but anyway so it's fine if it's really called blair witch or whatever but just just put Blair Witch on the poster and stop <laughs> fooling around. And it, so now what are you saying? Are you saying that you want to see, you're hoping this movie shows the witch? Well, actually, yes. I mean, that wasn't what I was saying right then. I, I was just saying, don't call it the woods initially. And then be like, ha ha, it's actually Blair Witch. No, I understand what yeah. you're saying with okay. that. Yeah, but, but I'm saying you hope it goes further and shows more. So are you hoping to see the witch? Because... Yes. Yes, I am. Things, one of the things about that first movie, I don't. I like the fact that you just never knew. I liked the fact that you didn't really see anything. There was just this sort of not invisible threat. You got the feeling it was really there, but this mm-hmm. this unknown threat. Yeah, unseen. In yeah, fact. unseen threat. I'm exactly. with you. Yeah. I now, be- and, and is this found footage? It sort of gives that feeling it might be. I don't know. I can't say. It might not be. Yeah, you know, I'm just, just speculating. I'm thinking of that one shot of the girl sort of looking back toward the camera as she's walking up you know, to the campsite, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, the thing is, to answer your question, I mean, Uh recently we had The Witch, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Which I loved. And I... Yeah, I I did too. I was a fan of that as well. Yeah. They showed us The Witch. Now, they didn't show us as much of her as I wanted, but we still got to see the monster, quote unquote. And that was much more fulfilling to me than The Blair Witch Project when they didn't show us anything like at all. Right. So, since Wolfman Josh isn't here, and in case people haven't read his comments in episode 93, he writes, As the tagline says, there was something evil hiding in the woods. It turns out that the upcoming Adam Wingard film, The Woods, was actually Blair Witch, a very secret sequel to the Eduardo Sanchez, Daniel Merrick's classic. Now see, I wish I didn't know any of that stuff. I mean, I'm not saying Josh didn't spoil it. It's just that all this buzz now and coming out at Comic-Con and people are saying scariest movie ever. We are inevitably going to go into this film with expectations. So I'm not attacking the marketing department. I'm just saying that all this stuff, this hype, I think is actually maybe not helping the film as much as they think. But anyway, Josh continues. Apparently, Bloody Disgusting was reporting this back in 2015, and it's interesting to listen back to our 2014 interview with Sanchez about Exists and our 2015 interview about the Blair Witch Project with this in mind. It's clear that he already knew about it. So that's interesting. Why didn't Eduardo give us the scoop back then? He could have. I don't know that he could (laughs) have. No, I'm kidding. I I know. (laughs) I know. He's contractually obligated. But people like our friend Allison with an I, she said, The Blair Witch Project is one of my favorites. The second installment was abysmal, but I have high hopes for this. I love Adam Wingard's VHS. I didn't care for your next at first, but after giving it a rewatch, it's growing on me. That's right, Allison. I'm excited to see what he has to offer here. And Sal has already stated this is basically a retelling of my summer vacation. Hashtag witchcraft. Oh, and there's a little crystal ball there. That's pretty awesome. (laughs) 
And we should probably talk about the fact that it's Adam Wingard at the helm. I think that's um, very encouraging, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah, they've already got it renamed on IMDb as just straight up Blair Witch. But Straight up Blair Witch, okay. Yeah, so with Adam Wingard then, we already talked about your next, and I actually love that. The guest, some people thought that that was pretty creepy. Uh-huh. He did something for the uh, ABCs, didn't he? Yeah, it was uh, the ABCs of death. Yeah, Q is for quack. Yes, and I, I kind of, I, I kind of like that one. I like that, uh, that segment. He did VHS. He did the segment called Tape Fifty Six, uh-huh. and then VHS Two was Phase One Clinical Trials. Anyway, I think the guy's talented, and I'm excited to see what happens. I will definitely be there to see this in the theater, and I, uh-huh. I am excited. So. All that griping aside, I'm usually griping about something people know. <laughs> yes. But it's like, well, if we're going to hype it up and get excited for it, here we are. So I hope All it's right. as good as you guys say it is. <laughs> uh-huh. Or I'm going to gripe some more. Right, Dr. Shock? <laughs> there you go. I'm inserting one quick post-production note that I can't believe I forgot to mention. Blair Witch 2016 releases on September 16th, which is the same weekend as the Movie Podcast Network meetup in Indiana. So if you come to the meetup that weekend, which is next month, by the way, then you'll be able to see Blair Witch in the theater with Jay of the Dead, Geekcast Rye, Ron Martin, and Jeff Hammer of the Resurrection of Zombie 7 podcast, and a bunch of movie podcast listener friends who are going to be attending the event as well. So it'll be super fun. I hope you can come. You can read more details in the show notes for episode 94 at horrormoviepodcast.com. Okay, now before we move into the Ghostbusters versus portion of this episode, we want you to know that the following reviews contain mild spoilers for the original Ghostbusters from 1984, and they contain even milder spoilers for the new 2016 Ghostbusters film. We assume that everyone has seen the first film, and if you've seen the first film, then you probably have a pretty good idea of what's going to be in the second film. So we figure that the milder spoilers won't bother you too much. Okay, at this point in the show, we are joined by two very special guests for our Ghostbuster versus coverage. From the Sci-Fi Podcast, we have Brain... Hello, here I am. How's it going, Brain? Pretty good. Your first time on Horror Movie Podcast. Excited to have you here. Oh, good. I, I love the show. I listen to it all the time. Oh, really? Oh, well, that's good. I wanted to get into that because I, I know you're not a big horror fan. So I hate horror movies, but I don't mind listening to other people talk about horror movies because then I know about the movies that other people are talking about <laughs> without having to see them myself. It's less scary, too, if you're just hearing someone else talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Especially, you know, Jason's soothing voice. Exactly. And then we also welcome back to the show from the sci-fi podcast, Kill Bill Kill. Yes, Kill Bill Kill. Kill Bill Kill. Glad to be here. (laughs) Actually, I have a new name for you based on uh, this new Ghostbusters movie. I don't know how you feel about this, but I want to pitch to you Rowan the Destroyer. Yeah, actually, that's awesome. I love it. (laughs) You know, if I choose it, it will never stick. So let's see if you giving that to me works this time. Okay, so we are going to talk about Ghostbusters 1984 as well as Ghostbusters 2016 and kind of compare and contrast those. 
I like having the sci-fi guys on here because these movies do cross over into sci-fi a bit as well as fantasy, horror, and comedy. And Brain here is a physicist and brings some keen insight, hopefully, into the scientific aspects of ghost busting. Yeah, I bring keen insight into as much as is real in the science <laughs> of the ghost busting. So we'll, we'll see how long my segment lasts. All right. Well, I wanted to ask you guys first... I always like to talk about nostalgia with movies like this. You know, Ghostbusters 1984, the original was a big film in my childhood. And I'm curious what some of your early experiences may have been with that. So first, Rowan the Destroyer. (laughs) I don't know if this is going to work. Rowan the Destroyer. uh, What were some of your earliest Ghostbuster memories? I can't remember if I, even though I would have been pretty young, I can't remember if I saw this in theaters. I think I did, but it's one of those things that you watch so often. The second it came out to, to buy, we had, and I definitely watched it a lot. So this is the kind of movie uh, where, yeah, you know, sometimes you watch epics over and over again because they're such a huge adventure, but this is just a, a comedy, right? I mean, one of the the trivias that I have is until the release of Home Alone in 1990, and this is 84, this was the highest grossing comedy of all time. This was a big, huge comedy blockbuster, and it took me at the exact, like the most vulnerable moment. So, uh, yeah, I remember um, thinking ghosts were real. I remember being you know, scared of dogs after this, and I remember <laughs> for a short period of time being conflicted between you know, the photon pack and the, and a lightsaber. Like I was tempted by it until of course return of the Jedi came out. And then, then it was, I was back to lightsabers. So Uh, other than that, I I had the t-shirts. I had some of the toys, not a lot. And I would say this is a pivotal moment, a movie for me as a child. Like it was huge. What about you, Brian? What about me? What were your childhood experiences, <laughs> if any, with Ghostbusters? I just love that kill that I just did. Uh, so when I was a kid, I saw Ghostbusters in the theaters for the first time when I saw it. My parents took me to see it. Um, I think I was probably eight years old when it came out. It was one of the first, like, you know, grown-up kind of movies that I got to see. I just remember being completely in love with it and thinking that scientists were so cool because they could find ghosts and they could make these devices that shot laser beams and all of this really cool stuff. So it had a big influence kind of on what I thought science like was or could be. And I just remember it always being one of my favorite movies as a kid. And I sort of uh, drifted away from it, you know, in the 90s and growing up and becoming an adult. But then recently when I when it uh, just re-released in 2014 for its 30th anniversary, um, I took my kids to it. And man, that movie holds up, especially in a theater. If you go in a theater and see it, the soundtrack is excellent. The the effects sound good. The visuals are still appealing. It doesn't look dated. And the comedy is so well written that I'm, I was really surprised at just how how much I still loved the movie and, and still appreciated it after all of these years. Yeah, I had a similar experience to you guys. I think I, um, I remember seeing this in the theater and that initial scene in the basement with the ghost scared the living crap out of me. It was like a a nightmare moment for years to come after that. 
but I loved the movie, and I grew up on the cartoon a lot. Like it was, it was like a Saturday morning cartoon that I watched all the time. The Saturday morning cartoon was one of my favorites, where Egon had blonde hair all of a sudden. Yeah, uh, and it was in kind of that big swirly pompadour. I watched that cartoon for years. Um, yeah, I want to talk more about Egon's blonde hair when we get to Ghostbusters 2016. But um, yeah, this one just had a huge impact on me as well, and. You know, the sequel is only a few years later, but I guess it was enough years that I was a little tiny kid to old enough to want to go to a movie with my friends by the time the second one came out. And so I really remember having a really excited experience in the theater, sitting there waiting for it, and then the music comes on. I was just totally excited. Me and my friends were losing our minds uh, at Ghostbusters too, but yeah, not not quite as good or worthy of discussion as the first one. Um but speaking of the first one, let's go ahead and get into our feature review of Ghostbusters from 1984. Let's listen to the trailer now. Ghosts. Hello, Ghostbusters. They're real. You do? They're mean. You have? They're here. Ghostbusters. Hey, anybody see a ghost? They catch the ghost that won't stay dead. They're armed. <laughs> They're dangerous. Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. All right, that's bad. Okay. All right, important safety tip. Thanks, Egon. They're professionals. Oh, I'm the chairman of the largest paranormal removal company in America. Oh! You see it? They're all that stands between you and the end of the world. The city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. Real wrath of God type stuff. Fire and brimstone coming down from the sky. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Your girlfriend lives in the corner penthouse of Spook Central. You want this body? Is this a trick question? Play a stick. Hold! Beat him up! Smoke him! Make him hard! Ready! Ghostbusters. Starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis. Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters, 1984, directed by Ivan Reitman. And he directed Stripes and Twins and the second Ghostbusters, Kindergarten Cop. I'm just naming movies that I actually love and, again, own and watch all the time. <laughs> um, you know, so, you know... Obviously, very good director. Um, and you have the premise of this movie is, and this is just from IMDb, three former parapsychology professors set up shop as a unique ghost removal service. And, of course, you have it written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. They said every scene, now I don't know if this is true, has some improvised in it. But I think the script must have been pretty solid because I think it's an amazing structured uh, story. I think it's very well written, and it's of course starring 
Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, uh, Scorny Weaver, and Harold Ramis. Ernie Hudson? Yeah, Ernie Hudson. And uh, Rick Moranis? Rick, Moran- Rick Moranis, sorry. <laughs> Maybe that was karma for not showing up as a camp. <laughs> and then <I> knew it. <laughs> yeah, that's what he gets. Yeah. Well, as I understand it, um, Aykroyd came up with this concept for the first film, and he was all about the ghost stuff. And he had looked back at earlier comedy teams that had taken on the supernatural forces and kind of ghost catcher movies and thought, well, this would be great to update that to our modern time and bring in all these great special effects that they were doing at that time. And Ivan Reitman had directed Stripes. I guess he also directed Bill Murray and Meatballs. But, you know, Harold Ramis had been in Stripes, which was the Ivan Reitman film, with Bill Murray and also had directed Bill Murray in Caddyshack so this was, these were all guys who had worked together before, and Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd had worked together on Saturday Night Live. And my understanding that the Ernie Hudson character was initially supposed to be played by Eddie Murphy, but yeah. um, Eddie Murphy turned it down, I guess. Also, Harold Ramis did not want to be in it as an actor, and he eventually decided that after looking at some options, he realized he would be the, the best one for the role. But he was very hesitant to, to be one of the Ghostbusters, which, of course, we, when we look now... Just is crazy. I mean, when you look back, you know that he's who he is, and he's Egon, and uh, it's just kind of interesting to think about what do we ever, you know, kind of are hesitant to do, and and what we'd be missing out on. And I just think it was this great meeting of the minds where they were able to come in, kind of at the height of all their powers, and make something that was really yeah. unique. I mean, totally unique. If you think about this original pitch for the movie, it's become so iconic. But what a weird idea for a movie, and it's amazing that it works as well as it did. So these guys start out working at a university. It's it's mainly Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis' characters who are doing a lot of the research that they're working on, and Bill Murray seems to be just kind of along for the ride and uh, ultimately gets them all kicked out of the university. And so they're, they're looking for work, and they kind of stumble into this ghost hunting business, which I think is awesome. Uh, that they're able to kind of use their backgrounds to uh, start this new business right as all hell is breaking loose. But, um, Brain, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the science that they're employing right from the start and what mm-hmm. your thoughts were as they kind of get into the ghost hunting. Being um, a physicist myself, I tend to have a very narrow view of what qualifies as science and what actually follows the scientific method. So, uh, I guess I'm saying I'm a snob, <laughs> and you'll have to forgive me if I insult anyone out there. I'm sorry, parapsychologists, if you're insulted by what I say uh, about what you do. But <clears throat> so ultimately, at the beginning, um, I think really the the true scientist of the group is Egon. He's the one taking the samples, developing the PKE meters, uh, building the the proton packs uh, that fire the the you know positively charged plasma beams. Um, so the 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 real science behind uh, everything in the first movie is really the it comes from Egon. He's the heart and soul of what could be like the the science in the movie. Do you want me to address anything in particular? I'm curious about the tech in the original film, and does okay. any of the science that they are using or implementing hold up? I mean, theoretically. In real life. 90% absolutely not. 
But uh, you've got things like PKE meters uh, that Egon creates, which is a psychokinetic energy reader. Mm -hmm. It's a great concept, very interesting. It reminds me of something that's maybe like uh, an electromagnetic field detector, something that, that you know is able to sort of test the air for uh, psychokinetic energy. Now, is psychokinetic energy a real scientific thing? No. No, we don't have PKE meters. Um, I don't even. I don't even know. I don't even know how you could make something that would do that. Right. But, uh, but yeah, that's that's not necessarily a thing. But the the real science, um, the only real science that kind of exists in those in the original film is uh, in the proton pack. So. Dan Aykroyd's character describes the entities of ghosts as these negatively charged clouds, right? right? And in order to wrangle them, you would need something that is positively charged because opposites attract in, in electromagnetism. And so what what they have on their backs, what they're actually wearing, um, which I, I think even Bill Murray's character r refers to them as an unlicensed nuclear accelerator <laughs> um, at one point, <clears throat> is kind of that. What it is is... Uh, what's known in science as a cyclotron, which is a, a real device. Now, it's, um, there are groups, um, one at Rutgers that I've, I've actually been following that's trying to build these smaller cyclotrons that, that you know, the actual cyclotron itself might fit on your back, but the machinery to do it is the size of a warehouse. So the, these devices, as far as they are real, uh, they, they do exist but the the part where you kind of have to stretch your imagination is can i put this in a backpack so what a what a cyclotron is what's in their packs is a particle accelerator so it's a constant magnetic field there's the circular sort of disk part on the back of their packs and that would be um sandwiched almost like an oreo you you're going to have uh, a, a very strong magnet sandwiched on either side, uh, most likely an electromagnet because that's going to give you a very strong field. So you need a high uh, energy source on the back of your pack. And uh, what you would need is some kind of um, proton injector. So the, the way that, that scientists get protons to put into accelerators and colliders and cyclotrons and synchrotrons to do all these uh, proton beam uh, sort of experiments that we do is we usually start with hydrogen. So you would have some kind of hydrogen source on the back and then you bombard that hydrogen, which in its atomic form is one proton with an electron buzzing around it. Well, you need to, you just need the proton for a proton beam. That electron is screwing everything up. So you would bombard your hydrogen gas with Either microwave radiation, which is very popular, but but I would assume very dangerous to have on your back. Um, so they most likely have an irradiating source, which is what's in the new ones. So I'm going to go with that, that what they have is some sort of um, beta radiation source. So they're bombarding it with uh, more electrons and creating what's called an Auger effect, where the, the incoming 
bombardment of electrons slams into the electrons that are uh, orbiting the protons already, and, and the initial kinetic energy is so high that nothing remains to orbit, and they just kind of wipe out all the electrons as they go, and you're left with just these uh, bare protons. So when you put a bare proton, which is a charged particle, into this magnetic field, because you have this Oreo sandwich, right, on, on your back, when you put a, a charged particle in a magnetic field, it causes it to accelerate in a circular fashion so that it, it spirals outward. And by controlling the strength of your magnetic field, which in these particular things, the cyclotrons is constant. You're not changing your magnetic field. That's gonna be important later for when we talk about the new packs where the magnetic field does change. Um, the, the magnetic field is constant, but you would, you would have it set at a specific strength so that you, your protons are accelerating in a very specific spiral outwards and then going down uh, and you know, hitting, hitting the, the outlet to go down into the receiver, into the handle, and come out as a plasma stream uh, in order to, to sort of wrangle these negatively charged ghosts. You're now shooting these proton beams, which would be positively charged, and they're going to attract each other and be able to sort of uh, entangle the ghosts. So that, that's a little bit of the real science that, that exists in the original film. So despite the science not being realistic, there at least, it seems, they did some amount of research to at least be in the ballpark of what yeah, they're doing absolutely. being consistent within the world they're creating. Yeah, absolutely. And they did it in a very imaginative way that is still, I mean, even for guys like me who look at it and go, you can't put a cyclotron on somebody's back and you're not going to shoot a plasma stream that's that bright. And how are they getting this? I mean, even a guy like me is going to watch it and just have fun and be like, oh, yeah, they got a cyclotron on their back. I wonder if I could make one that small, you know? Right. Would it fry a giant marshmallow, though? That's what I'm really wondering. Oh, yeah, totally. Because <laughs> okay. it's it's plasma, right? So <laughs> it's this highly charged uh, stream which will have some form of thermal uh, mass to it. It's gonna, it's gonna be hot. So yeah, you could light a marshmallow on fire with it. Absolutely. So William, you're kind of the story guy of our group of friends. What, what gets you going about the story of Ghostbusters? One of the the setups of this is these are the outcasts. These are the the people who are studying and believing in things that are not are not accepted in normal society or the people that are mocked like like we've set up like these are we don't know what kind of science they are using or not using or if it's founded um and so what i love i love that there's that setup where they believe in something that no one else does and it ends up being it ends up being real and not only real but they are the only ones who can do anything about it because they've been preparing for this ironically I love how it sets it up. It's their origin story, which I know a lot of people now in superhero movies are, are totally sick of. But this is so unique. Again, I, I find that fascinating. How are they going to do it? Because they have nothing. They're out of money. How are they going to get money? And then, of course, uh, what they're presented with is something's been building up. This is a counter, I guess, point to the science. I love when movies... And in horror, let's say, I believe in Tremors. One a good example is, what are these things in Tremors? And they say, 
who cares? All that matters is how we kill it. And that's the only line in the film where it's really tries to deal with what they are, why are they there. Now, it's telling me, don't worry about it, because that's not what we're going to do. We're not going to focus on that. It's not that kind of movie. Enjoy just the threat and how they're going to survive. Now, uh, this was mentioned earlier. Um, there is a lot of science, uh, I would call it jargon or attempt at talking about science, but just the fact that it explains nothing until they're all suited up, they're about to meet their first uh, ghosts with their equipment, and they're in an elevator, and it's just basically like, you know, the, the general quote is, you know, it just occurred to me that we really haven't tested this equipment. <laughs> and the, and yeah. then Egon goes, I blame myself. Bakeman says, so do I. And Ray goes, well, no sense in worrying about it now. This is as they, they've never used this equipment before. And then Bakeman says, why worry each one of us is carrying an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on their back? And that's it. That's like so late. And it's playing catch up. And they're not going to explain yeah. it more than that. So I just wanted to say from a story point of view, I now know where I am. It, it's they're saying don't worry about it we have these weapons they're serious and now we got to kick some ghost butt it's basically saying just go with it <laughs> yeah yeah I, I actually really enjoy the way that they do that just the the whole delivery in the elevator that whole scene is fantastic because they they use uh you know just enough kind of sciencey terms buzzwords and things that you're like oh this is like a real thing and then they just leave it and you're like okay well i believe them yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's funny that, like, in the world where these proton packs and everything exist, and then you see, like, the computers that they're using and everything, you're like, oh, okay, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. yeah, I like the build-up to the big threat at the end, and I like that, you know, they end up utilizing what seemed like a love interest that would be typical in a film. It seems like a comedic relief character like Rick Moranis would be typical in a film, and they end up utilizing that in the horror story part of the film, which is, is just great. I think that's uh, mm -hmm. really well done writing wise. I think it's like really impressively structured. executed. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I just, I think it's interesting to note that this was a huge special effects film. Like I don't, that's not my takeaway from the movie. I'm always thinking about the comedy and the ghosts and the proton packs, but it's interesting to think like this was probably the most expensive comedy ever made at the stage that they made it. You know, they're utilizing breakthrough special effects on these gigantic sets. And I don't know. That's interesting because it seems like such a huge risk, this film for the studio to take. And that kind of boggles my mind. And, and I just, I love the idea that they did take a risk on such a, strange movie when I don't think you would see that as much these days. Yeah. Any other favorite moments you guys want to talk about? Before? I think my very favorite quote from all movies ever happens in the original Ghostbusters. Okay. When they first meet um, <laughs> Gozer the Gozerian. Yes. And yeah. she asks, are you a god? And he says, well, no. And so she says, well, then die. And then Winston goes, Ray, when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. <laughs> that is my favorite line from like uh, all of cinema. I just love I love his delivery. I love the truth behind it because it's so obvious that that's what he was supposed to say, and he <laughs> and he didn't. And so I, that's I mean that's still to this day is one of my favorite lines of all time from any movie. The cast just has this awesome chemistry with one another. I love the way they interact with each other. Even, you know, Egon, who's kind of the 
the straight man. Uh, there's that little moment where they're lighting up their proton packs and it's like, do, ray. He goes, Egon. <laughs> he like kind of gives a little <laughs> sly smile to the rest of them. Like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm funny too. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, having watched this for this review recently, was so impressed with the balance of comedy and pretty seriously intense moments that even when I watched it was like, dude, that's that's like freaking messed up. It, it visually even looks like pretty scary. I mean, I understand there's there's some really shock horror out there now that doesn't even come close. But for me, like having hands rip out of a couch or a, a, like a love chair or whatever and start and like grabbing your face and pinning you there and then sucking it into like a glowing room. I I just think like, you know, this is it's pretty impressive how they balance these serious moments or when she's possessed it gets I mean, Bill Murray's making jokes, but like as I remember as a kid going like is she going to be okay? Like, you yeah. know. I was um, more these are scared of Sigourney Weaver possessed than I was of any other scene when I was a kid, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This movie, to me, is one of the best I've seen between comedy and showing that there are real stakes involved. Even within the realm that it is presenting or the the world we're presented with, the type of threat, it is perfectly presented as in there, you know, people are going to be lost here. You don't know if if these, you know, when I guess we can spoil, right? Like when they're turned into demon dogs and you're like. You don't know if they're coming back. You don't know what's. I mean, you know, people are being lost. I understand it's kind of funny at the same time, but I just think uh, I just wanted to say like brilliant balance between the two, and better than I've seen pretty much since with comedy. So I I don't know what would beat this as far as that example. Yeah, I think that's really well done. I also just love the production design in the movie. I love that they're at this old firehouse. I love that they're driving this old ambulance. The production design of the proton packs looks so great, and the PKE meter, their suits, the, their logo is so iconic. It's one of the big, iconic logos of my childhood. I mean, I see that on a t-shirt now, and I kind of get excited just seeing that logo. Yeah. All right, well, let's go into our ratings and recommendations. Um, Brian, why don't you start us off and give us your kind of your final thoughts and a rating and recommendation? Sure. So, like I sort of said earlier, um, this movie, I think holds up very, very well, even after, uh, you know, having been released 32 years ago, the comedy is still funny. The deliveries are still excellent. The acting is still great. The cast works together really well. And I think the story is very original. And, you know, that that's probably why they had to reboot it instead of writing a different movie that had its own original story. Because it is just so iconic and so well done, just a standalone uh, force. I would probably give the original Ghostbusters eight and a half out of ten. Definitely buy it, have it around, have it on your computer, get it on your iTunes or whatever so that you can watch it on those, you know, rainy days when there's nothing on TV and there's nothing to do. Ghostbusters is a great movie to pull out and watch because I feel like, at least for me, it never disappoints me. I never watch it and go, oh, why did I watch that again? It's a fantastic movie. Yeah, I'd agree with you. I'll go next. I just think this film, um, although, you know, I don't think everything holds up perfectly. Obviously, some of the special effects aren't, you know, as breakthrough now as they were then. And, 
you know, some of the comedy is probably considered sexist or racist, you know, more than it was (laughs) at the time. But as kind of an artifact of that time and place, and as this totally unique thing, as we've all said, that just is, you know, doesn't exist in cinema prior to this, to me, that's mind blowing. And that makes it a classic worthy of a 10. So I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10. I love Ghostbusters. It's just one of the big movies of my childhood for sure. And I'm so glad that I was able to show it to my kids and they dug it just as much. Like my kids are already asking for proton packs for Christmas and that makes me very happy. It warms the cockles. That's awesome. So I'm going to say buy it as well. What about you, William? Yeah. I just want to give a shout out to not only the eighties decade of cinema, but also just this year alone. So in 1984, I mean, you've got, movies ranging all over the place but i mean iconic movies and a lot of them even horror and sci-fi but you you know you have indiana jones temple of doom gremlins romancing the stone star trek 3 red dawn i mean there's a huge karate kid you have terminator these all came out this year you have friday the 13th the final chapter you got a nightmare on elm street again all this one year can you imagine a year like this anymore i mean it goes on the last starfighter came out this year uh, <laughs> along with starman i mean you know which one are you going to choose there it's a real conundrum uh, the never-ending story I-, I could go on i don't want to list them all but if you look up the movies movie hits of 1984 it's just like what in the world how did these all come out that one year anyway but ghostbusters is at the top it is beating them all in all sorts of ways, blockbuster success or or box office, and and I think even as quality, it's one of the best movies you can you can watch. I don't I think it's hard to compete with. The very first commentary I have I ever heard when DVDs came out was this movie. I, and this is how it went down. At the time, I didn't have access to a lot of DVDs. I was walking through like an office Mac store, watching. They, they had all these you know different movies playing on different screens. And I was like, oh, sweet, Ghostbusters. Oh, wow, this looks amazing. DVDs are awesome. But then I'm like, what's, why are people talking over the movie? Who, you know, what the crap is happening? And then I'm, I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, this is the director? And he's talking about like what happened that day that they filmed this? It's like a time machine. I was like, this is the greatest thing I have ever heard of. And I loved it. Of course, it's very common now, but my mind was blown. When I heard the first commentary ever on a movie I grew up with, and my last trivia, the marshmallow goo that was – it was actually shaving cream, and it was more than 50 gallons was dumped on the dickless man, Walter Peck, and it almost almost Uh knocked him to the ground when they did it. Uh, anyway, this is a 10 out of a 10. I judge movies with their special effects. Um, if they held up then, then I, I think it qualifies for holding up still. Uh, not compared to modern technology, obviously, but because I believe it's it worked fine for the movie we were presented with, I love it. 10, buy it, absolutely. Nice, guys. Wow, we came in high on Ghostbusters from 1984. Could not be happier about that. Let's move now to our feature review of Ghostbusters from 2016. On July 15th... Ghostbusters. Somebody's trying to unleash those in New York City. Meet the new slime fighter. Let's do this. I will kick the unliving crap out of you, and you, especially you. Feels like the slime is after me, personally. Why the 
This is just wrong! Alright, so this is a reboot of Ghostbusters, and I say reboot because this is intended to be a franchise now. They are really opening up this universe. Marvel has inspired everyone to open up their universes, and that's what we're going to be seeing here. Supposedly, there's going to be an, a new all-male Ghostbusters team. There's going to be another all-female Ghostbusters film, and I, I'm actually really excited about that. I wasn't sure. I was very cautiously optimistic was the phrase I was using over and over and over again when talking about the new Ghostbusters, because... Like we've talked about, the first one to me is such a classic and it's really hard for anything to live up to it. And so I was very scared that this was going to suck going into it. And I like all the women in the film, so I didn't want them to fail. And if Paul Feig's okay, I guess. I didn't want I didn't want him to fail. And I mostly didn't want the Ghostbusters franchise to have a, a black stain on it. But for my money, I think they came away with something pretty interesting here. So this is directed by Paul Feig who has previously directed Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig in some of their biggest films from Bridesmaids and on and on and on. This also stars Kate McKinnon, who was best known from Saturday Night Live up until this point, and Leslie Jones in kind of the Winston role here as the non-scientist joining the group. So what we have here is Kristen Wiig is working at Columbia University. She is a big wig as it were. Uh, she plays a character named Aaron, and she's just about to get tenure at the university when she finds out that a book on the paranormal, which she thought she had put behind her long ago, is now for, for sale on Amazon. It's everywhere, and when you Google her name, it's one of the first things that comes up. So she's very worried that she's not going to get tenure, and she goes to go visit her writing partner, Melissa McCarthy, who's working at a small technical institute nearby with Kate McKinnon, and they're in the laboratory there. They're working on all kinds of interesting paranormal contraptions and, and research there. Mm -hmm. And the movie is about kind of Erin coming to terms with her past as ghost girl and reuniting with her old friend Melissa McCarthy as they kind of set out on an, an a new Ghostbusters adventure that is unique from the story that we've seen before, but with enough winks and nods and touchstones from the original film uh, to recognize everything and you know like even down to their vehicle whereas in the first film they're driving a long ambulance car here they're driving a hearse so they're very similar shape but it's its own thing and there's a wink and a nod to the old fire station which i think is a lot of fun their suits are similar but not the same and they have proton packs and ghost traps and pke meters and all of that stuff that you want from a ghostbusters movie is there including the comedy but uh, the story is very different, and the approach to the ghosts and other things to me seem very different. And and for me, it worked pretty well. What did you guys think, William? I absolutely love this cast. I love their interactions with each other. I love everything they say, pretty much. I could have watched a movie with these four women doing almost anything, hmm. but I will have to say huge, huge just preference i could watch kate mckinnon all day long i had yeah. no idea who she was i didn't i've never seen her snl skits till after i saw the movie but i noticed right off the bat even when she's not talking in the scene she is doing something so quirky and funny and unexpected and i was so drawn to her and there isn't even a scene in this movie where it's kind of like they're getting to know each other. They get this new place, and it's it's Kate McKinnon and 
and Kristen Wiig. And let me just show you guys. I said out loud what is happening while I was watching. <laughs> you do that quite often when you're watching movies. I've noticed what is happening. <laughs> Before we get any further into the movie, then we might as well stop and talk about the character of Jillian Holtzman, played by Kate McKinnon, because she is definitely, for my money, the big standout in this film. And I mentioned I was going to bring up the Ghostbusters cartoon earlier. I think, you know, she is the Egon stand in in this film. And I think her look is very the real Ghostbusters cartoon Egon. She's got the big blonde mop of hair with the glasses. And I, I can't help but think that must have been what they were going for with her look. Mm. I know you liked Holtzman as well, Brian. Yeah, Holtzman. I think <laughs> I liked Holtzman as well. I think when you first asked me after I'd seen the movie, I said that to a physicist like me, her character is like sex on a stick. Yes. Right? <laughs> so, you know, on a stick. Physicists are very drawn to other physicists. But uh, I thought that um, her her character is so confident and displays her individuality and her uniqueness at such a level that it is you you like William said you're just very drawn to whatever she is doing in the scene even if she's not the one speaking even if the focus is supposed to be elsewhere um just her overall look and her confidence really draws sort of all of the attention to her. I think she's a big standout in this movie and um, I don't think it was intentional. I think she just carried the part and, and played the character so well that it's just, it's very entertaining to watch. Um, yeah. I really enjoy that she is a experimental particle physicist, um, especially working with nuclear physics, um, because that is something that I've always been very interested in and done work in uh, experimental nuclear physics. And so, you know, that right away was was a bell ringer that I was like, oh, this is fantastic. This speaks to me. <laughs> That's cool. I mean, I obviously was not relating to the character on the same level that you were, but I still felt, uh, you know, with her performance, she was extremely captivating you know i was really drawn to her just as a viewer and i know that she i think that is pretty universal i think she is the breakout performance i think melissa mccarthy is also very good and leslie jones is also very good and i think that they are not very showy whereas you know i think that holtzman character it's it's kind of a showy role i think the abby character played by melissa mccarthy is not but she does it kind of perfectly i think she just is that person 100 percent is committed to the role for me the big weakness of this film in terms of the cast was Kristen wig who i i typically really enjoy Kristen wig but i feel like that character was really underdeveloped or or under realized and i don't know what the issue there was i don't did i don't know if you guys felt that way did you guys like the character of aaron played by Kristen wig william i I totally understand, I think, what you're saying. I actually think that she could have been much stronger. I mean, the one thing that I remember from her, um, there's two things. One's not even, one's about her. Yeah, is when uh, the Kate McKinnon character says, where did you find such a small bow tie? And she said it came with a dress. <laughs> um, and then, um, of course, when she is with uh, Chris Hemsworth, she's aware that he's so dumb. I think it's just kind of an interesting thing where you have someone who's very intelligent but just still succumbs to something that they they don't even themselves think they're attracted to, but they can't help themselves. That's that's right. funny to me. Uh, but yeah, no, I see what you're saying. I, I guess 
You know what? She was so reactionary. In fact, her entire character was always reacting to everyone else. But then you have, you know, Melissa McCarthy's character who's like, she's the one who still believes. She's the one who, who you know, was the, the anchor to that this whole world. And again, like, yeah, Kristen Wiig seemed along for the ride. So I totally see what you're saying. It didn't really bother me. I guess it was just a, uh, maybe a little uh, something they can work on, I think, for the next one, hopefully. You know, there was a lot of criticism when this film was announced, and um, there were a lot of sexist pigs that came out of the woodwork to say, hey, women shouldn't be Ghostbusters and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Which is really? ridiculous. Yeah, total. Oh, dude, oh. it was everywhere. But I will say, you know, and they even referenced that in the movie when um, Kristen, when they are looking at their reaction to their YouTube video, and they're mm-hmm. like, bitches can't be fighting no ghosts or whatever. They read that comment. Yeah. Like, apparently that was pulled from a real, you know, reaction comment to the release, you know, to the news of the film being announced. <laughs> that is crazy. That's so funny they put that in a movie. Yeah. But, I mean, for me, Kristen Wiig is kind of the embodiment of that a couple times. Because I think all the other women, I just feel like, own their roles so much. And I just, even when she's, like, pulling out her, you know her shooter from the proton pack a couple times and it works for a character earlier on, but at the end I wanted to just kind of own that. And you know, that's her proton pack. Like I wasn't really sure that she felt comfortable shooting it. And I felt like by the end of the movie, I wanted, I wanted her to feel at home with that element. I just felt it was a little weak. I felt like she could have, she could have practiced with that a little bit more. (laughs) I like Kristen Wiig's character very much again. Um, maybe because I related to sort of what she does more. She's a particle physicist at Columbia University. Her character was sort of what I like to call a brown paper bag, like just very plain, yeah. very, uh, and, and trying to be. She's trying to forget this sort of colorful past that she had. There are just these parts where you can tell she deep down really is this colorful person who is trying so hard to gain acceptance in what is primarily a male-dominated field. She also embodies very much personalities that I have seen in the real physics world. She wants to fit in. She wants so bad for people to accept her for being sort you know, even though she's different and strange, she's will, she was trying really hard to change herself so that people will accept her and, and, and sort of take her in. And, um, and her discomfort with liking a boy is very, that's very, you know, I've seen that in some of my female colleagues, the, the way that she deals with Chris Hemsworth was very familiar to me um, and very funny and endearing. It was very sweet to me um, that she didn't know how to handle that aspect of of her life, um, (laughs) that she didn't know how to talk to a boy. I I thought her character was very good and very developed because that's kind of what I thought they were going for. It's just this uh, person who has a great deal of confidence in a cerebral intellectual uh, forum, but then in real life, has difficulty functioning in sort of an everyday situation, which I see all the time. So Kristen Wiig did a very good job of being that sort of uncomfortable, weird person. I don't want to get into major spoilers for this film since it's still in theaters and probably a lot of our audience hasn't had a chance to see it yet. So we'll avoid any big spoilers and probably from the halfway point on 
But let's talk about some of the earlier stuff. I really enjoy the first couple of ghost scenes in the film. I think when they go to the old mansion, um, kind of investigating their first case, that was done so well. And I thought, oh, man, we're going to get it like a haunted house kind of movie. Like I was getting really excited about the vibe that was setting up and it abandons it pretty quickly. And I would say the ghost elements kind of remind me of the live-action Scooby-Doo movies that came out about 10 years ago or so that James Gunn wrote, um, mm-hmm. especially when it gets to like the concert scene and stuff like that. But there are a couple kind of scary scenes peppered throughout. I think there's a scene in a basement with a mannequin that I thought was pretty scary. Um, and I really, <laughs> really enjoyed the look of the ghosts in this movie. I mean, I know that when the trailer came out, people had a lot of trouble with the CGI. And I think the CGI in the film is... I, I hate CGI normally, and this is kind of the kind you would normally criticize for being just way too colorful and way too cartoony, but something about the film that it's in really works, and I thought it actually was great. I mean, I think people could maybe argue with that they don't like the style, but in terms of execution, I thought that the special effects were mostly really well done. What did you guys think of that? You know, it's really difficult. I'm trying to be really honest to myself. I'm going to say I I liked the first ghost like you like you said very much uh it it was really glowy i I, but but i thought the way it was executed uh, it was scary when it was normal and it was scary when it uh freaked out and so i was fine with it i thought the mannequin was also really good actually the the way it was set up and even if it was a little CGI maybe when it started getting really animated. Um, still, I'm like, this is perfect. Scare the crap out of me. Uh, it takes a huge turn um, for me at that point. And, 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 and I think because of that, and I had such a horrible reaction to the entire sequence of the concert that I was a little bit more critical after that about the ghost. Um, like, for example, I love the go- ghost in the, in the trapped mirrors there's some ghosts and trap mirrors. I mean, without spoilers. And I thought, man, that just looks so freaky. And I love the way that's looking. But then there's those things, maybe let's call them um, parade ghosts. And I'm like, well, maybe they're supposed to be like that. And I, I, you know, it's just far as stylistically, it's just preference. I would say overall, it's not necessarily what I would have ever thought of. Uh, it's not a style of whether it's art or how it's presented or drawn that I would ever been excited to choose if I had some options. But do I think it ruins the movie? No, I don't think it ruins the movie. I, I think you just have to it's it's clearly presenting you with what they wanted. They clearly wanted this look and it just wasn't what I would have chosen. Yeah, I mean, I didn't love the choice, but then as soon as they did it, well, this worked. I thought it worked really well. Like, I was really enjoying it. The one that I had the biggest problem with is also the concert. I just thought that ghost wasn't scary or interesting. I don't get why. It seems like it should have some connection to humans. Yeah, that was my my (laughs) problem is why wasn't it humanoid? Yeah, and it just, again, that felt like a live-action Scooby-Doo moment to me, but... Mm-hmm. That whole concert sucked. But for me, that was really the only really bad scene in the movie. I thought the rest of it was really good, or really fun at least, really enjoyable. And I know that we differ, Brian, on our take on the Chris Hemsworth character. Again, I don't want to mm-hmm. get into spoilers for later in the film, but I just didn't like this character. I mean, I thought it was funny once or twice, as you guys were saying, those early interactions with Kristen Wiig, but... 
I just, I don't know. I could have done without that character. I don't feel like it added a lot ultimately and was kind of for me at the end. I think it could have been worse. Let me say that. I think it could have ended up a lot worse had they tried to go more serious with it. I think the fact that they bring in somebody like Chris Hemsworth, who just in the movie world is known for being like the handsomest man alive with big muscles. I think they're already sort of dealing with like, what are we going to do with this guy like how do we put thor in this movie and not recognize the fact that he is an adonis carved from marble um (laughs) basically just make him as dumb as a box of hammers and i really sort of enjoyed that because it was so unexpected i don't want to ruin it but his glasses i laughed out loud i've seen this movie three times and i've i laughed out loud all three times (laughs) <laughs> with when they had the gag with his glasses because that is just so hilarious to me. Yeah. Um, it's that was so unexpected. One, like, yeah, it's the well, I think it's like the very first gag that he does, and it's so just takes you off guard. Yeah, and you're like, wait, what? What the hell just happened? There's also a really funny run about his dog, which we should not spoil, yeah. but that is one of the funniest things <laughs> in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, <laughs> I thought that was pretty good as well. Uh, you know, he is included in the movie all the way through the ending. He plays a pretty vital role, but I kind of like that. It's not at all what you would think that he would even sign on to do. Like I couldn't even picture Chris Hemsworth being like, yeah, all right, I'm going to do it. That's what I'll do. I'll come into this (laughs) scene and I'm going to do this. And like, what? Aren't you a self-respecting actor? Um, (laughs) So so I, I really, uh, enjoyed his character. And, and yeah, I think, uh, you know, at some point you're like, all right, I get that the joke is still rolling, but I still, because they took such, uh, what I felt like was like a bold move with getting, you know, a Hollywood dream boat. I think it was really interesting how they, how they handled him. And I, I ended up really enjoying his character up until about the last 15 or 20 minutes, I really enjoyed him. And then I'm, then I'm a little ambiguous. I don't know if I enjoy what they what they did with him. Well, there are many deleted scenes with Chris Hemsworth throughout the closing credits, which I can only assume were intended to be as part of the finale, but didn't work so much that they just left yeah. it out. <laughs> and I'm so glad they did. Yes. Like I, I, I thought the same thing watching those credits, being like, this was, a, this was in the movie. Yeah. This was supposed to be in the movie. This would have ruined... The entire movie for me, I would have probably walked out. Yeah, that was really bad. And frankly, most of the climax didn't work for me. I think the villain, although he started out very interesting to me, I don't think really makes a lot of sense as the film progresses and doesn't work the way it is intended to for me. The major threat at the end, which I like because it calls back to the original film and is a very strong callback to the cartoon, The Real Ghostbusters, which hopefully mm-hmm. cartoon fans will pick up on. Um, I, I, it was okay for me, but just, I don't know, The ultimately the climax of the movie just was not that great, in my opinion. But and I've said pretty much everything I want to say about it. I do want to know, Brain, where what's going on with the science of this movie? It seemed like, from a layperson's point of view, there was a lot more science in this film than any of the previous versions and yeah they seem to really be just going for it with the physics and just putting it all out there this felt like if you were to get uh 
me and a bunch of my colleagues into a room and give us the original script for Ghostbusters and go, okay, rewrite this and make it like what you would want to see. That's what they wrote. If you know physics, if you're a physicist, if you're an engineer, this this movie is a lot of fun because they throw in so much physics that is real, not necessarily in context, not necessarily can fit on your back, not necessarily, you know, uh, real in the real world, but just to hear words being thrown out that it's like, oh my gosh, I know that word. I know that word. Oh, look what's written on the board. She's, she's got, you know, the, the fine structure constant and she's got, uh, she's using supersymmetry over in this corner. And then when we, we look at Jillian, uh, Holtzman's character and she's, you know, fixing the electromagnets on the synchrotrons on their back and providing a Faraday cage to help prevent quenching. So the electromagnet doesn't go out. It's like, Oh my gosh, I know what this is. This is real stuff. <laughs> and it's, it's just a lot of fun for somebody like me to see, because while it does still, you know, heavily hit on stuff that's not real and is obviously pulled in for movie sakes and for storytelling, they really went into the physics a lot more on this than than they have than they did in the past um, in either of the other two movies, Ghostbusters one or two, and and I think they did it in a way that is not sort of it doesn't pull you out of the movie, it doesn't ruin it for people who don't understand what's going on because uh, Kate McKinnon's delivery of the science is funny and entertaining so even if you don't know the words she's saying you still are entertained by the fact that she is so in love with what she's doing but i would like to say that a lot of what she's saying makes sense in context so the difference between the old pack and the new pack is that the director brought in a genuine uh, experimental particle physicist. I think he's from MIT. His name's James Maxwell. Yep. If you're a physicist, you you know what a curse it would be to be named James Maxwell and to be a modern day physicist. That would just be a nightmare. It would be like naming my kid Albert Einstein. That's a huge name to live up to. Um, if you don't know who he is, Google James Maxwell physics and, and you'll be blown away. So they brought in this guy named James Maxwell, who was an experimental particle physicist at MIT, and he put in real synchrotron science. So the original packs are cyclotrons. A cyclotron, if you remember from earlier in the, in the show, you put a particle down in the middle of a magnetic field and it spirals its way out, gaining energy as it goes until it comes flying out of the cyclotron at high energy. Um, a synchrotron is different. A synchrotron does not have the particle move in a, in a spiral, it moves in a constant circle. So now instead of spiraling, you just have this donut shape on your back that is con that has a, a constant supply of protons that is spiraling through this. And in order to do that, you need extremely strong electromagnets that are capable of increasing and decreasing in strength. So they have ultra high energy. These packs are much more energetic. 
than the former packs. Um, to put it in real science terms, the energy you get out of a proton beam from a, a cyclotron is somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 500 mega electron volts, whereas what you get out of a synchrotron is in the tera electron volts, hundreds of tera electron volts. So if you know what I'm talking about, then you understand that. And if you don't, then it's just a lot more powerful <laughs> new packs. Um, the new packs are a lot more powerful. The first use of the proton packs, they're in a yeah. subway tunnel, and they're going to zap this ghost. And at this point, the proton pack is not a pack. It's on a cart, and they're wheeling it down the tunnel, and they attach mm -hmm. it to uh, Aaron, Kristen Wiig's character. And Holtzman puts it around this uh, thing around her neck, and she's like, this is just grounding so you don't die. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious, because we do funny. wear, I mean, dealing with plasmas or, you know, huge electromagnetic fields or any types of experiments where you're going to have a lot of electricity around, a lot of times you are wearing a grounding collar, but that grounding collar is a little, like, rubber band strap that goes around your wrist yeah. and then goes down to a grounding thing. So to sort of exaggerate that and to just make it this massive, like, collar of death <laughs> that they snap around uh, Kristen Wiig was, I thought that was fantastic. And it was quite funny. When but, they actually try to use the pack, the plasma yeah. beam, and that's not the yeah. right word, stream? Oh, that's right. The plasma. Yeah, both beam or stream okay. or, you know, whatever. So the plasma stream is kind of like when I turn on my garden hose at half power. That's what we get out of the pack. Yeah, and it they, sort of fizzles. Yeah, so could you talk about that a little bit? So I was saying how these new packs are synchrotrons that, that use superconducting magnets. What a synchrotron does is it gradually increases the strength of the magnet, increasing the, uh, the velocity of the particles, which gives them more kinetic energy, so you have these stronger plasma beams. Well... Uh, in order to do that, you need your 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 magnets to to be at full power. You need a lot of juice going into them. So my assumption, uh, you know, with my experience in nuclear physics uh, and and knowing that they had a real nuclear physicist there, uh, is that he was like, you know, what if at first they don't provide enough power to the magnets to get a strong beam, and it just sort of fizzles out. It is a, a good joke, but, but what ends up happening in that scene is that Holtzman tries to dial up the power, and when she dials up the power to the magnets, the beam gets a lot stronger, and then there's a point where sort of everything's going wrong, and the, the pack hits the third rail, which is 750 volts, and at that point... There's a comment by one of the characters uh, slightly, you know, a little bit after sort of what happens where she says, wow, when I got all that extra power, it really held that ghost. And so then, uh, you know, Kate McKinnon's character is like, oh, I know I know what we got to do. I know what I have to build. You know, I need more power. I need it to be mobile. And so what's happening in that scene is is sort of real synchrotron science. You need yeah. stronger magnets you need more electricity to give those magnets juice to be able to accelerate your particle beam and give it more sort of oomph. It's also the test scene that we didn't get in the first film, and as much as I agree with William and I liked how they handled that in the first movie, I really enjoyed mm -hmm. this test scene in this movie. I thought it was hilarious. All right, anything else we can learn about the science of Ghostbusters 2016? If you're interested in the science... Uh, a lot of what they've done 
has been documented online. In fact, there is an Easter egg written on the board behind Kristen Wiig when she's preparing for her lecture that, that is sort of her review for tenure, I'm assuming. Um, there is in the upper right, I believe, there is an equation that actually is a word that leads you to a website. So if you're interested in sort of how they put together the science for Ghostbusters, um, you can look for that, but we can give it to you here. What it, what it ultimately says is paranormalstudieslab.com. And I think they've done a, a good job of sort of encouraging people to learn about the science behind it. Because when I was a kid, Ghostbusters was one of the huge movies that made me interested in science. And I knew it was fake, and I knew you, the, you there weren't ghosts, and I knew you wouldn't be able to catch one with a proton beam. But just the fact that this was something with these cool devices that people were talking about as if they were real things really made me interested in science as a kid. And I think they've taken that a step further with this movie. Anything in any movie that can encourage young people, old people, to be interested in, in what is going on in science. I love getting the public interested in what real science can be. And if we need to do it through science fiction or horror, like uh, Ghostbusters is sort of that crossover, any way that you can get people interested is a, an extremely valid and, and very exciting source for me. And I, I love how they sort of stepped it up a little bit for the new movie. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we talked about this when we reviewed The Martian over on the Sci-Fi podcast, but I think, you know, like you were saying, even if you don't know the science, you have a confidence in the film when it seems like the characters know what they're talking about. And even mm -hmm. though, yeah, I didn't understand much of what Holtzman said, if anything, with what Holtzman said, but I was totally on board with her as a character because I believe that she knew what she was talking about. And so yeah. I, I really enjoy that aspect of it. And it does make you curious as you know, when we finished watching uh, the Martian, I was like, man, I should have been a scientist. <laughs> I <didn't necessarily laughs> have that feeling at the end of this, but you, after watching Holtzman, you're like, man, I should marry a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, there's a there's a push right now that uh a lot of the um LGBT community is convinced that the Holtzman character um right. is gay. And yeah. I think maybe that stems from Kate McKinnon. I mean Kate McKinnon, uh the person, the actress is gay. And so I think maybe that that comes through in the in the characterization of of who she's playing, but I thought that was a very that's a very interesting uh, interpretation as well. Yeah, and director Paul Feig did not deny it, so that's being seen as a as a non-admission. Ah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a pretty famous comic book author named Noel Stevenson right now who who is writes queer comic book mm -hmm. stuff, and she tweeted the other day. I was looking at her tweets. Says, "Will the world ever be the same after Holtzman? Will there be any straight women left?" <laughs> So, <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Um, as long as we're talking about Twitter here for one second, not to get too far down the rabbit hole, but I don't know if you've, you guys seen what happened with Leslie Jones this week on Twitter. I did. That was awful. Awful. Yeah, Leslie Jones, who uh, plays Patty in the film, kind of the Winston character, she apparently was flooded with racist tweets after Ghostbusters opened. She eventually tweeted, I'm in a personal hell and then left Twitter over it, uh, which is just awful. And, of course, you know, um, a lot of the cast and the director and the studio, you know, came to her 
defense and support, but just what an awful experience of that. That's there's it's been so much weird negativity around this film mm-hmm. uh, from audiences that is just I don't know really troubling to me. Yeah, I don't quite understand it, especially after after seeing the movie and seeing really these women. I think delivered a great performance, and I think it, I think it was William who said earlier on that uh, I could watch anything with the four of them in it, yeah. um, because they have a great chemistry together, like the original cast did in the original movies. They work together very well, and it's unfortunate that people are just so willing to write something off uh, on sort of a such a superficial level when they haven't even necessarily seen it or they have but they went in with you know a sort of preconceived notion of what they were already going to think and 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 thereby judged it uh based on those sort of already low merits but um it really i think it pulled something off that i don't think anybody really expected it to i i don't think anybody really thought it would be as good as it is and you know i think in the end it it really did they did a good job yeah i i think so too and you know coming from the perspective of you know the horror movie podcast i think that the scares were a lot less than even the first film and and to me that's a Mm -hmm. bit disappointing because i think it could have been greater and i would have enjoyed it even just a little bit more especially again with our main villain i just feel like it was uh, yeah. not quite utilized as well as it could have been, uh, realized as well as it could have been. But um, William, from again, I'm, I'm going to you for the story perspective on all this. What did you think about the story of the new Ghostbusters as opposed to the original? It's interesting. The, I think the consistent dialogue of jokes is is very strong. They're both strong. Uh, as far as the story goes, you know, um, they're actually very similar. Uh, they're executed differently. I think that's the bigger difference. Um, you know, there's again, you, I believe what we're presented with, it does seem it's more of it does seem like it is for a little bit younger audiences. And I don't think that the scares are near the same tone. Um, I, they come close a couple times. I mean, I think if a young kid sees this, parents beware, there's a mannequin scene that I'm assuming they'll scream bloody murder anytime they see a, a mannequin. Um, <laughs> So, you know, it's close. It's not like it's not there at all. And I think the opening scene's pretty strong. The bat is a little weak. Um, his plan is confusing. Uh, the What he thought he was going to do, I'm like, I'm glad it worked out for you, buddy. But it's pretty risky in my mind uh, what his plan was. But all in all, I think the point is this is like it's an origin story. You get to meet everybody. And everyone is just so funny and so enjoyable. That it's here's these outcasts. Here's even somebody who's trying. It's like Goonies. Maybe I relate everything to Goonies. Like someone's trying not to be the outcast, pretending to not be a Ghostbuster or a Goonie, but clearly they were the whole time, and fate's gonna suck them right back into it. And here, and they're here because fate needs them to be ready to save the day. And that's just the kind of story you're dealing with here. I love it. I mean, it's just if you take it for what it is, it's it's great. Cool. Well, why don't you go ahead and give us your rating and recommendation then for the new Ghostbusters movie? Yeah, so something that I I actually learned by watching uh, this documentary on Netflix streaming right now called Ghost Heads, which is this whole documentary about 
about the fans of Ghostbusters, which, again, I didn't even know existed. It's very similar to the documentary Trekkies or Ringers, the Trekkie for Star Trek fans or Ringers for Lord of the Rings fans. Uh, It's not, like, amazing, but it's um, pretty good. And one of the things that I hadn't thought of was that when you cosplay in in the whole, like, you know, Comic-Con world, what's interesting is if you want to go – most people are going as, you know, whether it's Thor – or Wolverine, and that's who you are. You're dressing up as this person. Uh, you're someone else. But interesting, I just had never thought of this. It, within the Ghost Heads world, as a Ghostbuster, you get to go as you. It's you as a Ghostbuster. It's not Thor. It's not anyone. You get to be you doing something uh, like if you were there to help, you know. And, of course, you know, they take it and do charity work, and I, I found it the whole thing. What an interesting thing that goes. It's probably not entirely unique to Ghostbusters fans, but I love that element of it. You don't have to erase who you are. You just add to who you are. Anyway, and so I really like that. Uh, and then I'm, I'm going to bring up a couple things, and they they directly link to how I give my rating. Um, one is the cameo situation, and this is personal preference. My cameo standards, I guess, I feel normally um, aren't uh, helpful or necessary. I'm not actually that excited about them. Uh, if they do have to be there, I don't mind if they're just a random character that says a line that's relevant to the scene or to the world we've been presented with. Um, I really don't like when they use uh, current like like catchphrases or if it's a pop culture person that says their current pop culture tagline. For example, I'm not sure why Ozzy Osbourne's in this movie and why he, oh, he expresses, yeah. he says his, yells his line, which is from an early 2000s situation, right? Yeah, what is happening? That, that scene, yeah. that whole scene is like, is this Wayne's World 3? What's going on? Yeah, so, again, and, and here's the thing, like, you've got all sorts of cameos from the original cast. Now, one has passed away, but the rest are there from the original Ghostbusters. And one, I, uh, Bill Murray, I didn't understand. I didn't understand. I There was a TV spot that I was like, oh, yeah, that's exactly where I was like, if you're going to have a cameo, there it is. Great. Uh, but then he he joins the scene. He comes into the world, and I didn't understand why it was there, why it was funny. And I don't I don't think it's a spoiler to say there are cameos, but maybe, maybe it is. Um, anyway, Dan Aykroyd says a catchphrase. And I'm like, see, I actually was enjoying Dan Aykroyd until he said a stupid catchphrase. I didn't enjoy it. I honestly, I love that. And I don't, I don't normally like the catchphrases. I, I'm with you, but I, I kind of wanted to hear all of the big iconic lines from the original film. For example, like, and here's the thing I'm going to, you know, I, I feel like I should do this every time, but it's not necessarily no one's ever asked me to do it, but I think it's fair. So I've been criticizing cameos. So I want to suggest how I would have done a cameo in this situation. If I'm going to be a big whiny face about it, what what, what do I suggest? Well, I love the idea they're in these old abandoned train tunnels or or that they could be. And I would love the idea that the, the new Ghostbusters walk down and maybe their meters go off and they're like, oh, the dimensions are weaving around. We don't know what's happening. And then they see four other characters out of the mist come up in full Ghostbusters outfit. They're the original cast and one of them's a ghost still as a Ghostbuster, and they do this awkward moment, kind of borrowed from Shaun of the Dead, where they look at their doppelgangers, and they just mm-hmm. have this moment. And it's kind of funny. And, and, and everyone gets to say their, maybe their current things that they would do, maybe their uh, catchphrases that they would normally say, but it's because of this unique scenario. And then, boom, something happens, dimensions go back to normal. Call it good. 
I just feel like I want to see Bill Murray as a Ghostbuster. I don't want to see him as this loser. That's my opinion. I'm obviously <laughs> very dramatic about it. I believe I came up with at least the one idea for a solution. Uh, the other thing, uh, so yeah, I'm not going to point an entire point off my rating. That's why I'm, I'm dragging this on. One point for that cameo uh, debacle. The other thing is that whole concert sequence was just nuts. I just don't understand. You have Ozzy in there. You have the world, the world, world's worst generic band. I don't even know what's going on. Is it a rock band? Mm-hmm. Is it a metal band? Who is this even real? Get a grip. Can't they just find a real band? Um, and if that is a real band, I'm sure that's not a real band. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, of course, they have like the joke is oldest time, the crowd surfing set up and payoff. I just don't enjoy it because I've seen it in like 10 movies that I can name right now. So, an entire point taken off for that sequence. And so, yeah, that all being said, it's an eight though because I loved it. I loved the movie. I loved these four women. I love their their acting. I love the writing. I love the interaction between them. And I, like I said, I can see them do anything. I can't wait to see them do another Ghostbusters. Um, I, yeah, I do hope that they get to stand on their own and not have to like really pull so much from another movie. I hope that's where the sequel goes. And I'm going to buy this because this is the movie I could have in and watch and just have it be playing at any time and just giggle because every line pretty much throughout it, or at least every 30 seconds, there are lines that I think are hilarious. And I think it's totally worth buying and enjoying. Just enjoy it for, for what it is. And that's my, uh, that's my take on it. So because this one's still in theaters, would you tell people to go see this in the theater? Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. I, Really enjoyed the cast. I thought the writing in terms of the dialogue was a lot of fun. In terms of the science was a lot of fun. I liked a lot of the early stuff in the film. It really fell apart for me in the last... I don't know if it's much as the last third, but definitely the whole last fourth. Uh, it was just not working for me at all. And I wasn't a huge fan of Chris Hemsworth past his introduction. <laughs> I mean... He wore on me pretty quickly after the beginning. I wish Kristen Wiig had been a little bit stronger. And I just was not a fan of the way they handled the threat and the climax, which is a big deal for me. Um, But I liked, I think this had a lot of potential, and I think a lot of that potential was realized. And I think mostly just the Holtzman character alone is reason enough to watch this movie, in my opinion. So uh, as a film, I give it a seven, but I would say... It's worth seeing in the theater if you liked the first film and you want to have a good time. In my opinion, it's no worse than the second film. Like I think anyone who's railing on this but has seen the second film should check yourself because it's not that bad. <laughs> I can't. I don't know if I'm gonna buy it. I guess I'll buy it. I guess I will buy it. So because my my daughter, who's eight years old, is absolutely in love with Holtzman and the rest of the Ghostbusters. Both of my kids want proton packs, as I mentioned for Christmas, and. Uh, so yeah, I guess we're gonna own this movie. So, see in the theater and buy it. What do you say, Brian? So I'm probably gonna rate this higher than you guys. Uh, the reason being is because of the connection I felt to two of the characters, being that I am a physicist and there are two physicists in this movie, and they were done very, very well in the way that I recognized their characters. I could draw on real-life experiences. I felt comfortable with them as individuals. Like, I felt like I knew people, like I knew them 
I felt like I knew them. I loved the science that they did pull into it and that they used. Um, I loved the way, you know, Jillian Holtzman was written. It was really fantastic. And I, I'm a big lover of scenes in movies. I don't necessarily love entire movies. I love parts of whole movies. In yeah. fact, there's not very many movies that I can say I love the whole movie. Um, even in the original Ghostbusters, there's parts where I'll be like, all right, this is where I'm going to get up and go get uh, a sandwich. Um, <laughs> and and there are definitely parts in this. We've, we've already kind of beat to death the fact that the concert scene sucks. And <laughs> that is definitely a part. Having been now to the average listener who maybe doesn't know anything about us, all of us are musicians. I am a former professional musician. I was also a production manager touring on, you know, with large scale American bands that you have all heard of. Um, and to see a concert done so badly <laughs> was, such, was just such an insult to everything that I had ever done in my days in the music industry. And I was so offended offended by that and I'm still when I watch that I'm so offended by how bad and just badly acted and badly done. like this is supposed to be a metal show why can't you find a modern metal band that wants to be in the Ghostbusters movie for yeah. dirt cheap and have them play a real metal song well I mean who is this lead singer I wanted to smack that guy I, I looked Such it up a douchebag I looked it up while we were talking. He is an actor. He is not an actual singer, which yeah, I'm not surprised. I'm not at all shocked. In fact, uh, when I went to see this with my family, um, a comment I made to my wife was, I was like, that that obviously was just a stunt man that had to be thrown <laughs> into a, you know, had to be thrown around. And so he just got up and sort of lip synced this really terrible song that, you know, the, the director's stepson wrote or something. That's oh. why it's in the movie. It's so bad. Anyway, the marquee says, like, 12-hour metal fest is what it's <laughs> 12-hour metal fest. So there's supposed to be 12 hours of metal love, bands. I love this is the, If this was a real metal fest, we got to see the band that got booed off stage and got their butts kicked in the alleyway yeah. later that night. That's who we got to see on, on screen. Very that disappointing. Scene ends with a selfie stick, which is also not great. Now, normally I totally agree with William on like uh, catchphrase delivery from cameos or something. But I felt like the way Dan Aykroyd handled his his scene saved yeah. the scene. I, th I think just the way he did it, I was like, okay, I'm okay with what he just did. I actually yeah. kind of like that. But it was all in the delivery. I can say, film-wise, I don't know if you guys noticed, because I've seen the movie a couple more times, um, there's some discontinuities in the costumes, and there's some dis there's a there's a glaring discontinuity in the location of where they are, like where their sort of uh, home base is, um, that happens for a split second that you're like, wait, where the hell is that? That's not where... What? Uh, <laughs> and it took me a couple times seeing it to be like, wait, what? What's what's happening here? Dimension her hair shift. was like this, and and the stripes on her suit were not like that, and you know, just little things like that that I was like, oh, this is reshoots. 
this is, you know, maybe the movie sucked the first time and they had to pull in for a whole bunch of reshoots because you, we get those special scenes during the credits that it's like, oh, my God, this could have been in the movie and really ruined it. <laughs> I feel like the first movie probably sucked and they did a whole bunch of reshoots to improve it. And in those reshoots, they lose continuity. But having said that, um, the scenes that I like in this movie, I love. I absolutely love and I would watch this movie over and over and over just for those scenes. It's really done so, so much better than it could have been. I mean, this this movie could have been a nightmare. And I think it turned out so good uh, in comparison to what it could have been. Um, It's a great movie. I would give this movie a nine because the scenes I love in it. I love more than the scenes I love in the original. Wow. And I would say absolutely buy it, um, especially, you know, if you find yourself in the same position as me where you're an experimental physicist at a university, you might really appreciate sort of the characterization. You will definitely appreciate um, Jillian Holtzman's toast at the very end. Uh, I think that harkens back to every freshman physics class that I can remember, um, even the ones that I participate in now, if I'm helping with setups or or, or teaching, I, I've even said things that sound like that. I can't even believe it now remembering. It's just so genuine to the culture of where they're supposed to come from. And so I would say definitely buy it, definitely see it in the theater, and I give it a nine. All right, guys, that was our versus conversation about the two Ghostbusters movies. Um, I know that there will be a lot of other opinions out there that may not be as rosy as ours. I think we all liked it a lot, and I know that the, the movie has been hit or miss for a lot of people. So if you disagree with us, go ahead and leave your comments uh, in the comments section of HorrorMoviePodcast.com. Red Cap Jack, one of our listeners, wrote a really great review of this film and the show notes for the last episode. And I was going to bring that up in our review, but we were already hitting on most of the points he brought up and didn't totally agree with him on a lot of them, but I didn't find a way to work it into our review. But if you want to go check out his review, it's really good. He's very thorough and he has some different points of view on it as well. And I, and I hope you guys will share your points of view as well. Um, Guys, I want to direct people to the Sci-Fi Podcast. Let me just go one at a time here. Uh, Brian, let me start with you. Where can people best find you online? If you're looking for me online, the best place is at the sci-fipodcast.com. Um, we actually have a link up there now. We, we're starting to have requests, people asking about sort of the science in movies. And, and, and our host over there, Matroid, made a special link uh, that's now available on the page called Ask a Scientist, where if you have a question about any of the science portrayed in any science fiction movie, or if you hear something crazy on the news, or if you are baffled by the political pundits using science terribly to promote a cause, please write to me and ask your questions, and, and I get back to them as quickly as I can. Um, and even sometimes when they are relevant to certain movies, we'll mention them on the podcast and I'll sort of bring in, uh, questions from listeners who, uh, wondered about science in certain movies. William, what do you have to say? Yeah, I just want to say, uh, the last beautiful thing 
that I heard and I had no idea from Ghost Heads was there's a slogan that they have where it says Egon, but not forgotten. And I just like that was a beautiful <laughs> thing that, to, that they use with each other. Um, but yeah, like we said, please check us out at the Sci-Fi Podcast. And our latest whole uh, thing we're doing right now, episode 23, is the first Predator. And we're going through the, the whole Predator movies. And it's exciting. Please check that out. And um, the, the last thing I want to say, and I just want to put it here because I was very quiet while you guys talked about it. I I'm, I'm, was not aware that um, – well, I'll just say this. Anyone who has ever said that Ghostbusters uh, you know, can't be women or anyone who has said anything about someone uh, being black and then that's a problem – why don't you just pull your head out of your ass and apologize to these talented, wonderful women who you're trying to demean? Very good. Thank you to Kill Bill Kill, a.k.a. William Solo Jr., a.k.a. William Rowan the Destroyer, and uh, Brain, a.k.a. <laughs> Brian Patchett. Thank you guys so much for joining us on the show today. It was great to have you guys on Horror Movie Podcast. I'd love to have you back again. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Okay, and at this point in episode 94 of Horror Movie Podcast, I am here with Wolfman Josh Legary, and we are together having just walked out of the theater from seeing Lights Out. And Josh, do you want to tell them where we are? <laughs> yeah, we're at Jason's one favorite places in the world. It's uh, the Dairy Queen. And I don't know if all of the Horror Movie Podcast listeners know exactly what your fascination with Dairy Queen is. I think the origin of that is probably on a Movie Podcast Weekly episode somewhere. But uh, most listeners, I think, probably have heard about Jason's love for the peanut butter parfait. So <laughs> being that it's a little hot outside still as we record, we thought maybe we retire to the Dairy Queen nearby and record there instead. And I was really looking forward to buying Jason a peanut butter parfait. But he informed me it had one just prior to the film. <laughs> Which is even better. Priorities. When you meet a famous person, you kind of want them to live up to your expectation. And um, like when I met Louis C.K., I interviewed him for a film. Mm -hmm. We interviewed him in the Comedy Cellar because that's where you want to talk to Louis C.K. Of course. And if you're going to talk to Jay of the Dead in person, it should be at the Dairy Queen, in my opinion. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Well, thank you. And it was really nice because uh, the wolf man here, uh, since I just had a peanut butter parfait, he bought me an a Arctic Rush, which used to be called Mr. Misty. So just real quick, Josh, I know that you're getting ready to leave the country, and I don't know if we've you've discussed that yet in any of your prior recordings on this episode, but um, can you tell us anything about this? Because it's kind of exciting. Is this a filmmaking venture? Uh, yeah, so with this, I mentioned Louis C.K. a minute ago. I'm doing this documentary that features a lot of stand-up comedians, and um, the Montreal Just for Last Comedy Festival is happening currently, and we're going to head up there and record an interview with, I'm hoping Jerry Seinfeld is the plan, so we'll see how that goes. Oh, wow. He's one of my favorites, and... Um, as luck would have it, the Fantasia Horror and Fantasy Film Festival is also taking place at the same time in Montreal. So I'm going to get to go and to uh, see some first shot at some horror films, hopefully at Fantasia while I'm in Montreal. Some guys have all the luck. <laughs> That's great, though. Well, good. Well, I hope you have a good time. So will you be... Uh Sending us some coverage from that, maybe? Well, I guess if I get into a film, then yeah, we'll definitely do a special Fantasia review. 
um, podcast, I guess. Okay, that's we'll excellent. We'll see how it goes. All right, well, um, I want to thank the listeners for uh, bearing with our our audio quality here with all the ambient noise. I find it a little bit distracting, but hopefully you can hear our voices more prominently in the foreground. Um, so we've heard before, Josh, that they tend to like it when we just walk out of the theater and then we <laughs> we have all of our energy and excitement. And Josh is, right now he's uh, catching Pokemon on his phone <laughs> as we speak. And uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> More on that in a minute. But um, I actually, in preparation for Lights Out, I took your advice and Dino's advice and Juan's advice. And I watched the short prior to seeing the film. Okay. I did watch the short film. So, and you guys were right. There's not, I mean, if you know, if you've seen the trailer or you're aware of the concept of the film, there is nothing about the short film that will spoil the feature film, you know. I, I had a feeling having seen the, both the trailer and the short, and I'm glad that that turned out to be the case. Because mm-hmm. I'd have hated to split, but it's it's pretty clear when you see the short that there's nothing much more than the concept, although I think it's done very well in the short, and it was interesting kind of comparing and contrasting that with some of the uh, choices they made for the feature. Yeah, I totally agree with you there, um, and, and in fact, uh, I thought the short film, even though it's only like 2 minutes 42 seconds mm-hmm. or something, I am impressed with how many of the conventions they slip in, and um I know this kind of overlaps with the feature film, so um, let's move into our feature review of Lights Out. Every time I turn off the lights, there's this woman waiting in the shadows. I see her too. Okay, so first things first, Josh, I just want to say that my favorite thing about this, the short film concept and the feature film, is that they have um, made us afraid of the dark again. That's like a universal fear and has been for eons and eons, and they've actually captured that fear of the dark. If if you're in the dark, you're unsafe, Mm -hmm. and that's just a natural fear, and like, it's really clever, right, that they thought of a concept to actually illustrate that. Yeah, absolutely, and I think the short is really effective in utilizing that fear of the dark and, and really reigniting it for me, <laughs> but I was worried about the feature, um, having seen the, the trailer, and even in the first couple of scenes, I, I was worried, mm, I hope they can pull this off because it's a bigger scale, and I wasn't sure a bigger scale fit the uh, kind of the vibe of the, the short, which was so effective about the short, I think, being in this tight and closed space in a small apartment, mm-hmm. I was worried that taking that into a factory might not have the same tension. And I wasn't sure if it did at first, but I was became more pleasantly surprised as the film went on. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are lots of things to praise about this, but for anyone who has seen the trailer, and we're not going to go into spoilers here, so don't worry about that, but if you have at least seen the trailer, then you know that in the feature film, they go into the the monsters, quote-unquote monsters, backstory, and honestly, that's the that's a, a huge disappointment for me about the feature film. I was heartbroken. Like, when I saw that in the trailer, I'm like, no, no, no. 
please just be like it follows keep the monster mysterious we don't have to know why this monster exists or where it comes from we just we know that it is just like in it follows and it's scary to us and honestly Josh um, I, I watched the short film this morning and I thought I'm gonna have trouble going to sleep tonight yeah <laughs> and then having just now seen the feature film now that I have that backstory it took away the mystery and it's like Okay, this isn't applicable to me anymore. I'm right. not as worried about this monster happening to me. Right. Yeah, there's certainly, when you explain a monster too much, it takes the fear element out of, for the audience because it's like, okay, I never have to worry about this particular threat. And I, I sometimes I really like that if I'm really scared. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. it, it is a, just a bit of a disappointment because it takes the allure out of the monster. I mean, I liked a lot of the places they went with it. I think the exposition scene that we get there about the backstory is probably my least favorite scene in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think I do like how it impacts the characters. I just, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of torn. I'm not quite as down on it as you are, but I, but I also um, had problems with the way it was used in the, in the movie. Yeah, and, and in fact, uh, there are actually a couple of different exposition scenes where it's like, okay, here's the, here's the exposition. Do you remember in, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, this is not a horror film, but it, what is it called? Transformers, uh, Revenge of the Fallen. <laughs> Do you remember that ancient, um, Transformer that they find? It's like an old plane or something, and he's like an exposition bot. Uh, his sole purpose in that film is to come on and <laughs> explain all the background. Well, it's ex- it's like one of the clunkiest examples I've ever seen. Well, this movie does that too. It like grinds to a halt, and then they actually like tell you a story. And in fact, the first time we get the exposition, there's so much about it that's very convenient <laughs> that it's just like, wow, you have everything there. It's just kind of nuts. So, um... Just a real quick break in this. Some dude just threw it or seated us. I don't know why. But he waved. That's nice. <laughs> no, no. Did he write a maybe, note that says, I need it. help? I need help. <laughs> <laughs> we were thinking the same thing. Now the sun is blazing in on us. Okay. Anyway, that was distracting. But yeah, that, that exposition is just, I think it's extremely clunky. And I think for people who aren't as familiar with movies and the way they built and the way they work, they work. They they might not really pick up on that's what's happening, but for people who know a little bit about screenwriting, it's just it's not organic at all. Well, there were two a couple. There was a couple flashback scenes in the film. The first flashback scene I thought was so good. I thought it was so deftly executed, mm-hmm. and so I was really disappointed later when we got more a more standard kind of expository kind of flashback scene yeah because it was just so different from the first one that we got and the first one was so much better and so yeah i don't i don't know that they needed to go this almost feels like opening of a sequel kind of exposition where they're like okay now we need to dig deeper into this monster yeah could have really made it through this whole movie without knowing a lot of that stuff Uh, i totally agree or even have just heard it in kind of a first person Way from our characters rather than going into fully realized scenes that take place at a different time. Well, yeah, and and, and in fact, since it is a, a supernatural monster, first of all, I mean, we're talking about a supernatural film here. 
which I typically don't love, as you know, but this one, um, just tremendous. And since it is supernatural, we wouldn't even have to know why or when or where. I mean, it's just the fact that there's a supernatural, malevolent being that's after our characters is good enough for yeah. me. But. There's children in peril in this film, which I think is one of the strongest elements it has going for it as well. Yeah, and, and likable children, in fact. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and didn't you say, like, the, the lead little boy, I mean, he reminded us both of um, the kid in Jurassic Park. Who's yeah, in, who's Gabriel, mm -hmm. Gabriel Bateman in this film, I just thought, man, I love this kid. What have I seen him in before this? And I, the whole time I was trying to figure out, but he's so young, I thought it couldn't have been anything too long ago because the, he's a very young child, but it turned out, oh, yeah, he just looks like the kid that's in Jurassic Park. He sure does, yeah. Absolutely. So, one of my favorite things about this um, monster is the, and I suspect that this might come a little bit from um, Japanese horror cinema, but the way this this monster crouches down, there, there's a lot. There's a lot of squatting. There's a lot of like crouching. Um, there's a lot of scratching. Hair in the face. Yeah, hair in the face. And it's like. Um, it's one of the most effective examples, at least for me, of those kind of things. What did you think of the execution of the monster? Um, I thought it was great. I was, again, a little bit disappointed just because of the short. I thought, um, for me, I, first of all, I like that these filmmakers um, are from Scandinavia, so I, I would have rather seen something more just different, I guess, from, you know, from maybe their region of the world. And so to see it kind of borrowing from... Japanese horror, I thought, oh, it's too bad because we could have got something maybe a little more unique, but mm -hmm. I thought it was done well, and I I didn't have a problem with it. It was also different from the short film, and I was worried about that in the trailer when I saw that, because I thought, oh, the short film's so great, why change it? Um, one of the elements that is, I think, just a very minuscule spoiler, it's in the trailers, is that this monster in the feature has these glowing eyes, which it doesn't have in the short film necessarily. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't love that in the trailer, but I thought it was actually a really smart choice as we got into the feature, because it it would have been hard to pull that character off without more shape and more yeah, you know, kind of a directness that the eyes give it. So I thought that was good. Yeah, I totally agree. And in fact, with the glowing eyes, it's not like... Um like Zool from Ghostbusters or anything. It's almost like when you shine light in somebody's eyes and it kind of glimmers. Like you know a cat I, or something. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit like that. And I think that's a, almost like organic and a little bit more realistic. I think they actually practically on set did it with just like a reflective tape that you'd wear out jogging at night and they just shone... I can't remember. I was going to try to look that article up because I read it months ago, but I think they even just used like a cell phone light to wow. reflect that light, but something really soft and practical. Oh, and they shot it on set. Yeah, that's tremendous. And, and that's another thing that I like is about because you have a monster that attacks in the darkness, this is a, a horror film that does really well with, you know, just kind of cloaking much of the screen, like a lot of the mise-en-scene and most of the, and many scenes are in darkness and you get a little bit frustrated with the characters because it's like, hey people, turn on more lights, yeah. like, uh, you know, but like... <laughs> 
but they also write it into the story um, kind of a reason for not having more lights on and I think that was also kind of a stroke of brilliance yeah absolutely and I think um, the discoveries that happened along the way weren't totally clear to me I think some of the pro- biggest problems I had with the movie were maybe issues with uh, things being lost in translation because although I think there was an LA screenwriter on this the director David Sandberg and, and his wife who appears in the short and in the feature a lot of lost in um, they are from Sweden, and so there were a few times when I thought this seems really stilted. This conversation, and I thought maybe that was a. Sometimes you see that when you have a foreign writer or director, even when American actors will come in, they're still kind of seeing these phrases or things that don't quite click in our language. So. Wow, I, di- I didn't even really pick up on that too much, but um, that's interesting. Maybe yeah. I was hypersensitive to it, but uh, several times when I was saying I don't really, I don't really love this moment, I realized. Some of it had to do with the language. Oh, okay, that's interesting. 74? I'm glad that you brought that up. So that was his wife that appears in the short film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was really cool that she got to still appear in this film as well. Yeah, and I liked her placement in the feature film because it it was reminiscent to me of the short film, and I yes. appreciated that. It, it was almost like an homage. Yeah, right? and I feel like the film did that. It gave us some of the short film moments very early and, and kind of to allow us to get a new story for the rest of it. So I thought that was great. Yeah, I totally agree. And in fact, um, something that films are doing more and more lately, I mean, this is not new, but I love how there's almost like, in the cold open, there's a short film sequence within itself that Mm -hmm. precedes the whole, like the title card of the film. And this has a great, I mean, it's like a riff. It's another version of the short film. Um, but I would say ramped up even hmm. in this one, and we learn a lot about the monster, like about you know it's not just. See, my thing is, like in a in a ghost movie, for example, I would always think, you know, if I see a ghost, it's like yeah, but what are they gonna do? Like scream in my face? Like do they really hurt me? Like you know what I mean? And and so with this, uh, you know, I won't say anything about what this being is. But when you shine the light on the being, it disappears, as you see in the trailer. And we see right in the opening that this being can inflict physical pain and a very serious injury. I mean, I feel like this movie must have been very conscious of both It Follows and The Babadook. I think I spotted clip, you know moments in this film that felt like, oh, okay, they got this idea from It Follows, and it's effective. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an effective way to show the danger of your monster right at the beginning of the movie, and I thought that was a good idea. Yes. And to show how <clears throat> drastic the you know damage this monster can do. Yeah. So you get the rules kind of right away, even though you don't... It's not as clear maybe in It Follows as it is in this film. This, this does lay things out very overtly, and that was one of my criticisms I was always watching it because I thought this is doing a lot of things that like the Babadook did but like so much more on the nose compared to the Babadook and so I was struggling with those kinds of thoughts as I was watching it um, 
but those largely dissipated for me because I was pulled in by the performances and, and there was some great filmmaking too they really utilized the rules of this monster very well at, at a couple key moments oh yeah I was really excited about their use of it toward <laughs> the end especially mm-hmm. um, but you know we haven't mentioned the actors uh, Teresa Palmer who I, I'm a big fan of her husband actually Mark Weber but she's great too and um just a great actress. We mentioned Gabriel Bateman, the young boy, uh, Mar- Maria Bello, who I think is is excellent. Yes. And then um, the one character I didn't love was the boyfriend character, and I hadn't really seen him in much hmm. uh, previous to this. How did you feel about him? That was played by Alexander de Per. Yeah, I thought he was okay. I think the real problems with him weren't as much with his performance for me as they were with his, like, the character development. Mm-hmm. Because you... I, I, I never got a really consistent sense of him, whether he was just, you know, kind of sticking around just to, you know, hook up with this girl. Right. Or whether he genuinely cared. And so they seemed to be a little inconsistent on that. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. What, what was your problem with him? I think it was mostly his, like, line readings and stuff, because it just felt <laughs> very dramatic all the time, even when the scene didn't necessarily call for that. I felt like he was... You see this a lot with female actresses. You don't see it quite as much with men, which is interesting. But I feel like he was just trying to be sexy, like in a lot of the scenes. Like, yeah, like this guy is walking around trying to be sexy constantly, and it just felt like <laughs> I feel like he was trying to do Johnny Depp a couple times, like almost like an impersonation of Johnny Depp a couple times, which I thought was oh yeah, strange. Okay. But well, now that you mention it, I guess I could see that in his performance. What I'm, I don't mean to be too hard on him. I did like. Some moments, but early on, I don't know. I guess I was looking for things to not like, which is weird because I love the short so much. I wanted to, I was kind of rooting for this to be good, but I was very worried about it not being good, so I was being very nitpicky as we were going through the film, and eventually, thankfully, it won me over. Wow, well, good. I'm glad to hear that because. <laughs> Um, I actually loved it quite a bit. Now, Good. one other actor I don't think you mentioned yet is uh, we have Billy Burke in this as well, and I'm I'm a big fan of his, and I was happy to see him in it. I didn't see. I just that part didn't work for me as well as it did for you. It seems. The, okay, the Billy Burke portion. Yeah. Okay. That's it's interesting to note. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think part of it has to do with I mentioned the warehouse setting. Yeah. I mean, there were some cool moments again in the directing and writing that utilized the monster well in that setting, but it just felt really false to me. And it had less tension and kind of paranoia due to the size of the location for me. Yeah. Yeah, I I see that too. I guess. Yeah, because it is the the warehouse scene is so open, whereas the other settings in the film were like more compact and claustrophobic. Yeah, because the monster was really close. Right. I get that. Well, I guess we can't talk about a whole lot more because um, we want to avoid spoilers. But I just want to kind of underscore something you said earlier, which was right on the money. I wish we could talk about it more, but we won't. But Josh mentioned how they take the rules of the monster. And, and they really um, do some neat things with that. And so watch for that because they're really creative. And and I love that. I started thinking about it like about halfway through the film. And I thought, wow, it seems like there could be a lot more creative things they could do with this monster. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and then they end up doing it as it ramps up at the end. So I was really happy for that. And I just encourage the listeners to pay attention to that. And I think you'll really enjoy it. I hope this isn't a spoiler 
It does take place later in the movie, so if you want to, go ahead and cut this out. But there's a moment where our characters are kind of saying, all right, like, this is tough, but we'll deal with it in the morning. And I was just thinking to myself as that scene was happening, I hope this doesn't cut to the next morning. I hope we have to deal with this night. Mm-hmm. And then we did, and I was really excited about that choice. It, you know, it's something I mentioned in Scream when we reviewed that. I really love just that third act and stuff just taking place in one big chunk, and I thought this movie offered that, which I was really thankful for. Yeah, and I think that that speaks to how well the film ramps up the stakes. I mean, there are some some genuine stakes, I think, in this movie, and uh, they... It's intense. I mean, I think it starts to ramp on those and, and and really deliver, like you're saying. Now, as far as themes, I think this is interesting because even though this monster is... Uh, there's no doubt about this monster. In fact, I think it's interesting. A lot of times the characters say out loud exactly what the audience is thinking. Right. Many times in this movie. I noticed that a lot. And this monster is real. But I think if you were going to do like a, a metaphorical, like, okay, what kind of themes are they studying here? One thing I thought about a lot, there are discussions in the movie having to do with mental illness. And I think that that was really kind of poignant. And I love that because I think if anybody's ever struggled with someone who has like some kind of a mental illness or like an extreme depression or something along those lines, I think this movie has some uh, chill to it. And it really rings true in a lot of places. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Josh. So um, maybe we should go into our ratings because um, I don't think there's anything else we can really talk about without, you know, going into spoilers. So um, yeah, plot was there's not a lot we can say. Yeah, yeah, and maybe you know if the listeners ask for it, and if a lot of them end up seeing the movie, maybe we could revisit it later after Doctor Shock sees it, mm-hmm. and we could do like a spoiler conversation about sure. it. But uh, for Lights Out, what do you rate? the feature film of Lights Out. Um, well, I just wanted to go over a couple final thoughts, if I could. Sure. I'm, I'm looking at screenwriter Eric Heisserer, um, and I, I noticed that he is responsible for the screenplays of The Thing remake and A Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Mm-hmm. And so he's a guy who I think is used to doing expositional backstory, which kind of both of those films have a lot of. And so I wonder if maybe that's something he brought to the film um, but I do like actually more than most people that Nightmare on Elm Street reboot and that thing prequel remake and so um, I don't know I think he did a pretty good job here I think one thing we haven't talked about also is the cinematography is really strong in my opinion in this film I think mm-hmm. it looks great yeah it's really beautiful to look at so yeah I'm really high on the directing in this film I'm really high on the performances by Teresa Palmer and Gabriel Bateman, and I like the cinematography a great deal. I'm a little more cool on some of the plot points and storytelling. I think there are big chunks that are weak, and luckily there are big chunks that are really strong as well, so they kind of weigh out to a good film, luckily still, but I think the weak parts are unfortunate, and I wish... I found them a bit great and I wish they weren't in the movie. But overall, I really liked Lights Out. I think it's a great movie. And a phenomenal first feature film for director David F. Sandberg. I mean, you don't see many first features that are this strong. 
And so I'm going to give this one. I've been struggling. I've been I've been buying time here, Jay. I'm going to give it an eight out of ten. Okay. I am going to go ahead and say see it in the theater. I'm not sure if it's a buy it yet for me or not. Um, I'm not sure yet. I'm, I guess I'll say buy it for now, but I would like to revisit the film. It's hard walking out of the theater and reviewing it because we don't have that time we normally take to really ruminate on a thing and let it set in. Yeah. And um, that is hard. And so, it, yeah, I'm not positive, but I'm gonna. Th- I think I'm gonna say eight. See you in the theater and buy it. Yeah, uh, excellent. And, and the reason, in case the listeners missed it, one reason why we ended up doing it this way is because um, you're leaving on your trip, and we won't mm-hmm. be able to record together. So we kind of had to do it impromptu. But I bet you the next time we have an episode together, we may <laughs> we may end up talking about it more. Sure, I like this too. I think that there's a charm to recording it live with people talking in the background. Yeah, there's an immediacy, and um, you yeah. get all of our excitement about it. Um, now, was this rated PG-13? Yeah, it was. I was wondering about that about five minutes into the movie. I thought, this is a PG-13 film. That's yeah. what you know it was, yeah. And because I, I will say right up front, this is genuinely a scary PG-13 movie, mm-hmm. and this is definitely a buy for me. If for nothing else, if, you, if it's Halloween or you have people over that maybe don't watch a lot of horror movies... And they don't want something, like, super extreme, because there's not, like, obviously there's not a lot of gore or anything like that in it. There were two walkouts during our screening, though, I noticed. Did you notice that? Did they walk out? Yeah. Walk out? Okay. Wow, I wonder what that was about. I wish wish we could have asked them, because I'm surprised, because honestly, I I felt like, even though the film is genuinely scary, um, I think the PG-13... Uh, rating, aside from scariness, is, is probably right on the money because there's not, you know, you don't have a lot of the things that are generally regarded as, like, you know. Yeah, but there are legitimate kills in it. There are legitimate scares in it. So it doesn't, it's not chintzy on the in the horror elements. I yeah, yeah. So, anyways, for me, this is a, this is a 9 out of 10. I, I loved it. I take right. off a whole point for just how clunky the exposition is, and especially, I'm just disappointed that the monster, that they explain away the whole backstory, and I, I think that's a real failing. This would have been a 10, and <laughs> I mean, up to masterpiece level if they hadn't done that, but still, it's a 9 out of 10. I think you should definitely go see it in the theater. It's a lot of fun. It's a buy it. Yeah, it's a blast. People it's... were scared, and the lady next to us in the theater was saying, <laughs> oh no, oh no, don't do that. Yeah. Like the whole time. <laughs> it was so funny, and at one point she spilled her Nestle Crunch bites all <laughs> over the place, and because she was so scared, and man, that was hilarious. It got me on a couple of good jump scares there as well. Yeah, yeah, it has a couple, like... I would I would even classify them as severe. I mean, they're pretty hardcore jump scares. Yeah. So that's awesome. So, yeah, that's our review of Lights Out. Let us know what you think of it in the show notes for this episode. Okay, so, Josh, I have just a, a tiny little agenda here. We're going to keep on going into Dairy Queen. Awesome. Okay, now, um, this is going to be weird, especially to read out loud in a Dairy Queen. <laughs> but we got a... Um, <laughs> We got an email from a listener. Um, This is from Josh, and um, I forget what his his name on the internet. I think he goes by Tiamat or something having to do with Tiamat. Okay, it's just the five headed dragon, right? Awesome. Do you remember Tiamat? 
Yeah. I, I love that dragon. But anyway, um... Is anyone named Josh? So. Yeah. And what's cool about this is, you know, we get a lot of really nice email. Like, I don't know if you knew this, Josh, but on iTunes, we got, um... We, ha- we now have a hundred written reviews. And 98 out of 100 are 5 stars, and then only 2 of them are not 5 stars, they're 4 stars. Wow. And that's just remarkable. I'm and usually a glasses half full kind of guy, but I'm a little bit the glasses 2% empty kind of guy on that one. <laughs> Guys, what's with the 4 star no, reviews? No, no. <laughs> I, I just, I, honestly, I think that's astounding to me. I think it's remarkable. and um, it's humbling. And, yeah, Thank it's, you, guys. It's humbling, and in a way I feel undeserving. Well... The fact that we can take, like, praise like that, I think, means that we should also be able to take criticism. Oh, and, good. Yes. And and Josh here, he wrote a really nice email. Not it's, this Josh here. Yeah, not not, not Josh, Josh Legary. <laughs> this is the listener Josh. He wrote a really nice email, and it's very respectful and everything, but he gave us some constructive criticism, and, and I think... He makes a lot of great points, and I want to talk to you about this because um, I'm really interested in getting some of your feedback. Okay, do you want me to be defensive and snarky or (laughs) actually take these into consideration? Well, no, I'm I'm not requesting that you be that way. You can can answer however you like. I just want to tell Josh, um, Tia Matt here, both. Before you fast forward this section, and, and because maybe you don't want to hear this, but but before you do, um, I, I think I agree with you on a lot of your points, and I think you're right. So I hope you'll stick around for that. And let me just say this: <laughs> I think before we get into this, I think we are very deliberate in terms of the way we approach podcasting. Sometimes we have different views, you and I, mm-hmm. but I don't think we do too many things haphazardly. There may be an occasional occasional Pokemon conversation that's a little <laughs> haphazard. <laughs> but usually... That was very deliberate, Josh. <laughs> but, I, but I think we both at least are making choices and we know why we're making choices. We both usually have reasons for the reason we do things. Mm-hmm. So... Although, you know, someone may have a different point of view than us, and I think that's legitimate and that's fine and we can take the criticism. I am saying if it sounds like we're being defensive, it is usually because we have a very specific reason we made that choice. <laughs> that's right. And um, and that's what my goal is to do my best try to try to not sound defensive because, okay. like I said, I agree with this guy on many of these points, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you said all that because you haven't even heard this comment. You no. haven't read it, so I'm surprising Josh with it. And the other thing that might please you is that it's it's basically all complaints about me. Oh. <laughs> like, so, so this is right. the dead. I don't take that much pleasure in that. No, okay, okay. No, it's it's good. It's good. So He's here, for fun. Here's what Josh says. Not Josh Legary. Right. Josh the Tia Matt listings. He said I've been a listener. Wow, that was a loud chair. I've been a listener since sometime around September of last year, and in that time I've gotten to know the show pretty well. And I've definitely come to realize that though overall I very much I very much enjoy the podcast, there are a few specific consistent things that really bother me about it. It's just my opinion, of course, but feedback can be useful even if not always completely positive. Sure. Yeah, so we agree with that, huh? Yep. First, let me mention a few of the things I like. I like the thoroughness. 
and always feels like the reviews are very in-depth and cover the subject from many angles. It never feels light or rushed. Um, having different hosts from different backgrounds with different opinions and outlooks is a huge asset and it keeps it fresh. <clears throat> I love the humor. I love the funny, interesting personal stories and asides. I love the professionalism present in every episode and I love the different themes. I love the top ten list. I love the guest interviews. All this stuff's very well done and is why I come back episode after episode. Now, I read all that, Josh. Mm-hmm. You're like, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> but I read it on the podcast just now because I wanted people to know that this this Tiamat here is is given a really thoughtful email, and he, he, he yeah. put out the positive. And so. as much as I may be about to attack this guy, I don't think we want our listeners to do that, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to set up a situation where... Our very loyal listeners are attacking any of our other listeners because they disagree with us or whatever. Yes, and in fact, I, I will say um, this particular listener I know is also a, a loyal listener. Yeah. I mean, he he is um, he, he's really dedicated to the podcast, okay. and so that that's good to put out there. Though I'm glad you said that. So he continues. Now for the things that really turn me off. This is not intended to be a personal attack, but when I listen to this podcast, I listen because I want to hear horror news and movies. That's what I wish you would stick to. I get no entertainment in listening to long diatribes on the declining morality of America. (laughs) (laughs) Likening it to a zombie plague? Really? Uh, Racial inequality? overly elaborate systems designed to define and classify what is <laughs> or is not horror Pokemon Go <laughs> I knew I knew we were going to get it for that <clears throat> religion or extensive open letters to horror directors on how to direct better horror movies Jay I know your heart was in the right place but that last one in particular came off as very pretentious <laughs> Just stick to horror, man. That's what people want to hear. Try this the next time you're planning the show and coming up with these topics. Just ask yourself, does this have anything at all to do with the subject of this podcast? Then, regardless of... (laughs) When you laugh, that makes me laugh. I I just want this... Tiamat, no, I'm not laughing at him. You're right. Uh, and he says... Yeah. Then regardless, no, I'm, I'm laughing because I think he's he's hilarious in that moment. I, I do too, Tiamat. And he says, then, regardless of whether the answer is yes or no, follow up with, is this entertaining or informative? Does it add to the podcast? Does it enhance the experience? Or does this sound more like a preachy tangent? Or a train of thought that most likely no one else shares or even agrees with? Mm. <laughs> if so, then maybe consider blogging it instead. Which I think I think the reading between the lines there is, so we don't have to read it. <laughs> right, yeah. And he says, again, I love the show, and for the most part I enjoy listening to it. But I have to admit, these... Jay of the Dead train of thought ask diatribes he specifically named me there Josh yeah. are not enhancing the experience and lately named names <laughs> I've regrettably been finding myself fast forwarding through these segments completely <gasps> just food for thought and he sends it Josh he says P.S. you almost lost me with your Ghostbusters doesn't hold up well nowadays comment thanks to Josh Wolfman Josh for stepping in on that one and we'll come back to Ghostbusters in a second but Josh what, what are your thoughts on this email? 
I would say from one Josh to another, if I might. Um, some of the the Jay of the Dead diatribes are some of my favorite moments <laughs> as a podcaster. To me, that's... I'm just going to be totally honest. To me, that's what makes the show interesting and have value long-term beyond just reviewing movies. I mean, I know that we serve, and all film critics serve some basic function of telling people, should you or should you not go to this movie? But I'm much more interested in our themed discussions. I'm much more interested in our thoughts about life. And I personally, and maybe I'm wrong, but I personally have never found you to be preachy. I think you're very... um, considerate of people with different points of view when you talk about your own background or beliefs and I've never felt like it's been didactic or overbearing in any way so that's my that's my point of view on that I think Josh you may be missing out on some interesting discussion when you when you fast forward some of these moments because it's not just Jay preaching about, in fact, it's really not Jay preaching about, you know, racial uh, upheaval. It's it's usually does turn into a conversation about filmmaking and and horror. And um, I don't know. For me, that's I like. I really enjoy that. And to me, that's where I get a lot of my interest in doing the podcast. To be honest, I I want to talk about um, the things that inspire art and artists and where are horror movies coming from? Why does is this need within us to tell horrific, terrifying stories? Why, as humans, do we have that when, you know, the purpose of man is to feel joy? Why, then, are we drawn to some of these darker things? And I think, to me, that's fascinating to discuss, and I love that this is turning into one of the things he would normally fast-forward, but... Yeah, I, I know. I can know. we take a couple of those early things point-by-point point that he listed out? Because I had different thoughts about um, different points. Yeah, me too, and I just want to tell Josh, too, before he does... Josh, Tiamat, before he does fast-forward this, <laughs> when we do, like, address, because I do want to just mention a couple things... I won't go into the whole tangent again about them. I'll just do, like, very short thoughts on each of them. So I hope he'll at least listen to maybe why, because like you said, we're very intentional. So the first one is long diatribes on the declining morality of America. So have we ever done that before? Well, I know what he's talking about. And um, let me just cut in here real quick, though, before as we address because I want to tell him... Um, <laughs> the reason I said I agree with him in a lot of ways is because... Because you're overly self-critical. I, I am very critical of myself. <laughs> but also, like, the ultimate horror movie podcast to me, I think, would be... And this is the this is the kind of the lazy side of me, Josh, mm-hmm. honestly, is if we just showed up and we strictly talked about movie, we, like... Like, I love those those episodes when we, like, review a movie and then we go into the next movie and go into the next movie and then, like, you know, we were just reviewing movies and then we're done. But the film critic side of me, like, the one, the person who really wants to wrestle with the genre and learn more about the cinema, you know, it takes more work and more thought and, and, <laughs> and hot air. But, but that is when... I feel like we try to explore the cinema more in depth because we could talk about, oh, that was a great kill and this was a great kill, but like, I, I, I like after we record, when I shut off the recorder, I'm like, wow, 
We talked about a lot of random stuff, and we only reviewed like three horror movies. Yeah. But then when I'm listening back and I'm editing it, um, I have to say, in a humble way, I'm like, oh, I, I think this is really interesting content, and I feel good about it right. at that point. But anyways, go ahead. No, I, I, I seriously, I mean, I personally don't relate to that complaint because I just don't see that as something that you or we do very often. I don't think it's, to me, it's not about that. It's not about the declining American culture. I mean, I'm sure we touch on that occasionally, whatever, but I, uh, yeah, to me, it's always about the either the movies or the elements of society that are leading to the movies. Yeah, because, because to our friend Tiamat here, um, horror cinema, I mean, the horror that you love, when you say, just stick to horror, man, the horror cinema that you love and even horror literature, it comes precisely from people's concerns or worries or fears about the world they live in. Yeah. And and, and that's really, I mean, a lot of these things that we've talked about, like maybe not my, my Dairy Queen preferences. Sure. But the Pokemon Go thing, that is kind of ridiculous. I'll admit. But it was genuinely something that's causing me anxiety. Like, sure. Because I think it's kind of, like, disturbing. Yeah. But that's why I think we go into a lot of these things like the things that I consider to be zombie plagues or something it's because I see things that kind of horrify me horror filmmakers they have an outlet where they can make horror films about a certain thing like um, the lights out guy I don't know if he was trying to make a horror film that's a metaphor for depression but um, if he were I mean I could see that manifesting it that way and so I don't I'm not a horror filmmaker I'm a horror podcaster so I talk about the things that scare me yeah, sure. I mean, look, I if it's about Pokemon, I'm I'm kind of with you, Josh. Like, <laughs> Me too. I feel like I feel like I, I don't blame Jay for uh, you know bringing that up because I think it's funny and it's interesting, and I'm I am interested in talking about that for about ten minutes or five minutes or so. <laughs> I think you know Sal, one of our listeners, uh, tweeted that he had. Um, was halfway through the episode and all of the feature films had been reviewed at that point so he was wondering what was going to be in the second half <laughs> it's like buckle up buddy it's a lot of conversation so I mean I know that that may be yeah. I think recently we've done a couple episodes the one where I went just on and on and on and on about offending a listener and then this last episode where Jay had some of his conspiracy theories I do think those are atypical for us though and I think there's a spectrum yeah. and I think as a listener myself like maybe it's just me coming from listening to like Kevin Smith's podcasts where there's no topic. It's just two friends talking. And I know some of our longest term listeners really appreciate learning more about us and that's an element that they like to, to have is just feeling like we're their friends and you know we're and because you know we feel that way too. So I think um, you know there is a line where it becomes maybe too much, and I and I am aware of that too. And I thought maybe the last episode was yeah. a little too much talk about conspiracy theories. And I think the I one, agree. A couple before that, when I was going on and on, was probably a, a lot too much of that. That was hilarious, though. But people also appreciated those. I mean, people wrote us as you know, as much as we had complaints. There were other people that wrote and said, "I really loved that episode for this and this and this reason." So yeah, and you know, I was worried about that on the last episode too, and that's why we put clown up front. And Carnage Park up front. And we do put the times in, yeah. which takes some extra time. So you can skip the conversations if you wish. But um, let me tell a quick story. I brought something, Josh, just so you could verify to the listeners. This is going to seem really weird. 
I brought um, this newspaper clipping. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm proud of like three things in my life. I'm proud of my two kids, and I'm proud of being a film critic in a print newspaper. Yeah. And I'm holding up this article. It's um my review of that the Half Blood Prince, the Harry Potter movie, and. I actually got in trouble with my editors for this review for the very reasons that my friend Tiamat here is talking about. <laughs> because um, if you could see, Josh, I'm pointing to the article. About 75% of it is reviewing the film. This is like 400 words. Yeah. But this is where I go into talking about um, just some other thoughts that are not immediately related to the film, but they're kind of like branching off. Yeah. And by the way, I learned I learned to do that from my Roger Ebert's My Hero and right. that's where I get that. But the editor called me in to the office and he actually almost kicked me off this beat for this one wow. instance of that. And he's like, uh, what what was that at the end of that article? Because it ended up going out in print and I'm like and I tried to explain it to him and he's like, Yeah, don't do that anymore. Yeah. And I'm like <laughs> Okay, so it's like this guy doesn't care about exploring the cinema. Well, <laughs> right. the nice thing about having your own podcast is you can kind of, um, you know, you don't have an editorial person breathing down your neck. Yeah. So that's kind of fun. And I think the way that's manifest in our show is we have two types of episodes, as you know, the themed episodes, which are more focused. And then we have the Frankensteinian episodes. And those are a little bit like our after dark, so to speak, where we can. Kind of anything goes on those because it's random yeah. and weird. But I mean, yeah, I would just say, kind of back to that podcast format. You know, this isn't strict film criticism. I think the thing that really drew me to podcasts as a listener and a podcaster was that it was this new thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of pirate radio, you know. And so I <laughs> like the idea yeah. that it's it is different from radio. You know, I know. When I've tried to introduce people to podcasts before, they say, this is three hours long? Like, <laughs> I'm used to listening to an NPR show that's 40 minutes, you know, or whatever the, the case may be. Right. And to me, that's not this form. Like, podcasts are long form. And there are other podcasts that are drawn from public radio. You could listen to about movie reviews if that's all you want. is just someone giving you a very short you know, film review, but to me, digging in deeper, as Jason said, wrestling with the films and these topics are important. I don't know if you're going to hit any more of those um, well, beats, but just I don't a, need to, but if but not, but like the idea that um, you know we talk about maybe religion or whatever, that is you know a lot of these films we're dealing with are supernatural films that are dealing with these ideas of religion we're talking about the exorcist we're talking about even paranormal activity is dealing with the paranormal this film lights out a character says in this film and I won't say what they say but they are talking about whether ghosts exist or not that's an element of this movie and so mm-hmm. I think that it's almost unavoidable, in my opinion, to talk about these things. It is. Yeah, and um, the interesting, and I I don't know of any better way to say this. I honestly don't, because um, because Tiamat, I hope he can tell by now, since he's been listening since last September, I hope he can tell when I'm sincere. Honestly, uh, some of the best advice I ever got about podcasting is if if there isn't a podcast out there that like is exactly what you want then you should like create a podcast that's exactly like that and i'm not and i'm not saying i'm not saying 
Well, go make your own podcast. I'm not. I'm not saying that. Where's your podcast? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not saying at all. But I am saying, um, honestly, if you believe, if you feel like there is like a niche that's missing out there, and um, and you end up doing like filling that niche, I think that could be very interesting. But I will say, if you did do that, and I would bet like money on this, that probably one day. It just it just it's how it happens because you can't please everybody. You might get an email where somebody says, I, I think you should not do this and you should do this. I mean, right. So it is very subjective. I mean, Josh, if what you're saying is I mostly like your show, but there's a lot of extra junk in it, I think that's the part that Jason and I are both like, yeah, that, that, we could probably work on that. You yeah, know? I but agree. It, but for me, it's not ignoring entire topics like what's going on in our culture. It's not ignoring spirituality. To me, those are tied to the things that drive horror movies. To me, it's just like, let's manage our time better maybe on that topic and not go on and on with it. Or, you know, let's... Let's maybe be more... Ch- I liked what you said about think, does this in any way have to do with the topic of war? That's pretty funny. And I think it's, you know, and I think it's a decent question to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, but, true. Yeah. It's true. But but honestly, like, all of those, like, tangent topics, Josh, were things that, you know, were concerning me on some level. And about the, the Jason Blum thing, I, I feel like I should just answer this in one, like, short paragraph... Is it is it pretentious? I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what is pretentious about it. The fact that I I feel like I'm a film critic that can give my opinion about it. I guess that is pretty bold, and that that could be pretentious. Did I mean to be like pretentious? Do I think I'm better than Jason Blum and all that? No. Am I pretentious to think that I'm the film critic who should tell him? Yes, that probably is. <laughs> but I think somebody should tell him. Somebody from the horror community should tell him. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, a lot of the films are good, like we've talked about. But when we get these, like, these potboiler, no-brainer things, like, I feel like somebody needs to stand up for the horror cinema. And, and you know, should it be me? Probably not. But I don't know if anybody else is doing it, so sure. I'm pretentious enough to think I should. I, I think that's the job, Jason. I think you coming up with your classification systems and debating the genre, although that does get tiresome, I think, for some of our listeners. <laughs> yes. It's part of the job, honestly, and maybe we've covered it enough that we can do away with some of that now. Maybe, I don't yeah. know. I'm sick of it, really. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we probably don't need to talk about that. But much. I feel like... The thing I love about you, and I was telling some of our listeners that earlier this week, I love your ideas. And even though I don't always agree with your points of view, I love when when Jason says, "Okay, I've got this idea. I've been thinking about it all week, or I've been thinking about it all day. I want to want to throw this out there and see what you guys think." Like that was the most exciting thing to be. You know, on that last episode with all the Pokemon and everything stuff, like he rarely prepares me for what we're going to be talking about. But when we started the racial conversation, I was just like, this is, whatever he, wherever he's going, this is, sounds like it's going to be exciting. Like, I get really excited for that stuff. Mm-hmm. And and that's um, why I'm in it. Now, yeah, I mean, I totally agree with him, disagree with him about Ghostbusters. I pretty much totally disagree with him about Jason Blum, and sometimes I just want to pull my hair out when he's talking about this <laughs> stuff. But that's okay. Like I also think that is important 
They'd be like, do you really want to listen to a podcast where everyone just agrees? Like, that was good. That was good. That was good. All right. Yep. Okay. Well, see. You. We'll talk about the next movie. That was good. <laughs> now this one was bad. I mean, I just I like I like that back and forth, and to me, that also is one of the things that makes it worthwhile. And so, yeah. I mean, I don't I don't agree with Jason. Oftentimes, and we agree more. We agree more on horror movies than we do other movies. That's true. But that's it's true. rare that we actually agree on a film. I would say that's the minority of films. Yes. And so, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's important, and I think Jason represents another big swath of our audience as well. I mean, I get listeners often a lot that say, "No, I always agree. I usually agree with Jay." Um, Red Cap Jack is one of those listeners. Like he's like, yeah, for me, Jay usually has it right, and so you know that that's fine. I'm okay with that. Well, well, thanks, Josh, for your thoughts, and I want to thank um, the Josh Tiamat as well because I thought your email was awesome, and I really appreciate it. And I I agree with you more than you know, and and I, I want to get back to brass tacks on this stuff, and you know we'll still be covering our themes and our discussions, but yeah. The Pokemon Go stuff is probably a little much. So, anyways, I saw the new Ghostbusters movie. At this point in time, I know you're going to record an awesome thing with the, mm-hmm. the Sci-Fi Podcast guys. Have you done that already? No, that's Sunday. Oh, that's Sunday. Okay. I, I just want to just put in like a quick two cents on this because yeah. I, I won't be joining them for that conversation. When I went to see the movie, the new Ghostbusters 2016, um, the first thing that I think is notable is... When I was walking into the theater, I had the worst spider web experience of my life. Have you ever walked into a, a spider web? <laughs> like just in the movie, like in uh, it was an like, Indiana Jones movie style. It was exactly like that. Yeah. It was so bad and so thick that I thought, I'm like, this thing could have caught a bird because I was having trouble <laughs> getting it off. And it was freaking me out. This is in it, the theater? This is right outside that theater where okay. we just were. Okay. And and it was, like, intense, and I thought there was going to be a giant spider on me because that thing was very strong. Anyway, um, that's something I'll remember about this Ghostbusters. Real quick, I just want to say about the original Ghostbusters, the reason I'm not talking with these guys on that is because I, we talked about it in depth Um, the movie podcast weekly guys and so a lot of the listeners have already heard me so you don't need my two cents I just want to say I really do um, appreciate and love the original Ghostbusters I think I rated it an 8 I think an 8 it's like a buy I own it actually and I own the second one too (laughs) but um, I did say upon re-watching it I I feel like our love for it, or at least my love for it, was very nostalgia-based because is it a great film? No, but are the actors great? The comedians that are in it? Yes, they're great. So I just wanted to say that. Um, Do I like the original better than the new one? Yes. But do I like the new one? Yes, I do. I like it a lot. I see them both as more comedy, but I can see why we we would want to discuss it on a horror podcast because... They definitely have monsters in it, kind of like the same way you might discuss Godzilla on a horror podcast. But but this new movie would be like horror, would be comedy first, and like horror like fourth or something. You always <laughs> say that, but what are the genres in between then? I see drama, sci-fi, 
fantasy and horror. Like, I, I'm just saying, there's not much horror. But Carl, I totally disagree with Carl on Movie Podcast Weekly. He said there was like zero percent horror in this, and I don't think that's true at all. I mean, there are a few scenes that it has a legitimate monster. It has jump scares and stuff. So. Yeah. So that's it's ghosts. Yeah, it's ghosts. So one of our listeners, just to also give a second opinion, speaking of people who don't like Ghostbusters, um, this is not a listener I, just, I agree with in this in this instance. But as long as we're here, Hugh Lloyd tweeted at Horror Movie Podcast. He said, "New Ghostbusters film is terrible. Avoid at all costs. It's so bad." And I I, I don't agree with you, Lloyd. But I, but there's another opinion if you don't like ours. Yeah, I got that from. Um, Mario left a voicemail over on Movie Podcast Weekly where he hated it and told us to avoid it. But honestly, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, I'm not like Carl. Carl actually prefers the new one over the old one. And that's not where I'm coming from. But I appreciated it a lot. I actually thought it was kind of funny. I thought the actresses were great. I like what they were doing with gender. Like, with the swapping. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you had the... The guy who is like the himbo, not a bimbo, you know, like in, right. and blah blah blah, you know. So I appreciated all that, but in terms of like how it relates to horror movie podcast, um, I, I just want to say, I mean, this has ghosts, it has possession in it, and I think the concept art is really cool in this movie. I mean, it looks really slick and polished and stuff, but like there are scenes involving balloons in this, and that's all I'll say about it. They look like. Tim Burton-esque, but cool. <laughs> Ouch. Yes, that was a... I was swinging at Tim Burton right there. <laughs> but, um... But, yeah, so I actually really enjoyed myself in the new Ghostbusters. I just wanted to tell you that, Josh. It's a 7 out of 10 for me. I tell people to see it in the theater, and I, and I think it's going to be a buy for me. I'm going to buy it for my kids because I think my son's going to love it. And, honestly, um... I believe, I think the the intense love that people have for the original, I think it deserves to be appreciated, but I also think that sometimes we have trouble admitting our love for things when it's somewhat nostalgia-based. That's all, I'm just going to put that out there, because it's a Nostalgia Goggles movie. But you love it. I know. You love it. Absolutely. So. I just wanted to give a couple shout-outs to some of our listeners on Twitter. We got a really cool tweet from Joe Brunette, who visited the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house today. There's a picture of Joe at the oh, house. Oh, man, that's so cool. Very cool. If that's cool, Joe, we'll post that in the show notes. Um, Joe, you forgot to watch a movie there, and... Film a video of yourself. That could have done very well for the yes. Dead Serious Horror Challenge right there. But uh, good job there to Joe. Also, I wanted to give a shout-out to one of our listeners, Ian. Uh, he's a longtime listener, and I hope this is okay to share this, Ian. He was he was public about it on his, on his Facebook page, and we've talked about him on the show as well before. But uh, Ian had previously struggled with some addiction, and he's two years clean. Wow! From that, and he he says that horror movie podcast was a big help um, 
in that as well. That's amazing. Congratulations, Ian. He uh, wrote in, and you read his letter on our Elm Street Mm -hmm. overview episode, if you remember. Yes, I I do remember that. And and Ian says here, this is in a Twitter conversation, so again, Ian, I hope I have your permission to share this, but he says, on the Elm Street overview episode, Jay brings up my story and battle with substance abuse. That was so hard to type, but I felt since the HMP crew was a beacon for me that reinvigorated my love for cinema and life, I had to email in. I cried when Jay, Josh, and Dr. Shock were so kind to me on the show. Some dude they never met who might be a vampire. Friends for life. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, brother. And he also said that love extends to this community, too, by the way. Sorry to get all mushy on you guys, but I just celebrated two years clean. So, wow. Congratulations, Ian. That's so awesome. And uh, we wish you well in the future. That's incredible. One day at a time. All right. Thank you for that. One last little thing. I went to the um, Orem Library. It's one of our local libraries. It has a great cinema collection. And I'm pretty serious about this library at your mercy picks. Thing. We can tell. We can. You brought it up. You brought up three uh, uh, episodes okay. in a row. Because here's the thing. I purchased for this community. I purchased the Blu-ray of Green Room. Oh, awesome! And I have it, and I'm ready to give it to a listener. But um, we haven't had a ton of participation yet. So I just want to kind of give you one one more quick thing, and then I'm going to let Josh go because he's he looks like he needs to get going. He's busy. Well, let's talk about, is there a decline in uh, American culture that people aren't visiting the library enough anymore? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I heard somebody the other day say, um, and I'll try to say this kind of quietly because we're in a restaurant, um, they don't like to go to the library because it smells like urine, and I thought that was really mean because I was like, I'm like, oh, huh? So, anyways, when I when I went into the library, I looked in their horror collection, and they had um, Dead Birds, Sam Fuller's Shock Corridor, which is a Criterion, uh, The Creeping Flesh with Christopher Lee, Burn Witch Burn, Die Die My Darling, Nice, <laughs> The Beyond, The Hidden of Unknown Origin, which is like Home Invasion. Uh, the Last Wave, which is Criterion, Golden Years, Man's Best Friend, Spider Baby, Alligator, The Crawling Eye, Jennifer, A Warning to the Curious, Josh, hmm. um, The Island, and that's not Michael Bay's Island. Uh, is it the uh, um, Michael Caine? The yes, yes Ooh. I believe so. Ooh, the pirate, the pirate thriller. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing. They had these classified under horror, and maybe some of them aren't necessarily... Oh, that's like think. cannibals, I think? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it does have that. The Strangler, The Spring, and I'm not talking about Spring. Right. They had uh, that... <laughs> they have one called Joshua, which you probably know about. <laughs> the Eclipse, 100 Feet, and The Old Dark House. And that was just... I mean, check that out, right? I, yeah, I was just looking through uh, some intriguing titles, and in some of these it's like, why does this library have this? And it's just so <laughs> interesting to me. So I'd love for people to participate on that. I just have one more thing I wanted to bring up really quickly, just as we were talking about, um, you know, these library at your mercies and our cool listeners. Jason, did you see the email that we got from listener Kagan in Salt Lake City is becoming a mainstay in mentions on this podcast and visits on this podcast? <laughs> did you see his email about having visited Zia Records in Las Vegas? Oh, yes, yes. I'm excited to share this. Yes. Okay, so um, Kagan had a chance to go to Zia Records, which Jason has recommended on this show at least twice and several times on Movie Podcast Weekly. Uh, Kagan went to Vegas, paid a visit. 
Overall, Kagan says, I walked out with nine titles for my collection. Most of them were sure bets, including The Thing and Black Christmas. Mm-hmm. But two of them were literally plucked out of the bargain bin. Yes. An activity <laughs> I typically never participate in, but an impulse I felt inspired to act on given Jay's fondness of finding rare trash. It's so fun. <laughs> the two in question are a 2006 film called Slayer. At another 2006 film, Naked Beneath the Water, <laughs> the latter of which was signed, so this is autographed, as follows, Chad, to my favorite zombie, love Sean C. This is written on the actual DVD case. Amazing. It says, upon quick research, I found that this autograph and sentiment was likely from Sean Kane, the film's writer, director, producer, and star. As a suggestion from Wolfman Josh, after I watch this sure-to-be masterpiece, I want to offer it to the first listener named Chad who wants it. I will ship it as it is obviously in the wrong hands with my name being Kagan. So <laughs> thanks to Kagan and thanks to Jason for inspiring him in this bargain bin blind buy. I love it. One lucky listener named Chad is going to have an autographed copy of Macabrini Thorner. Um, that says Chad to my favorite zombie and then signed by the movie's director, which is great. That is fantastic. Yeah, thank you, Kagan. And he sent us photos of that too, right? He did. He sent us photos of, uh, of Zia and his purchases here and maybe we can get these in the show notes as well if people want to see uh, the things that Kagan was looking at that he was excited about and there's actually the autographed copy there. You got it. Film. I love it. Alright, well, Josh, I, I wish you safe travels. And, um, and um, we'll miss having you, but this is going to be uh, a fun episode because you got you and the sci-fi crew, and depending on where that is in the episode, it might have preceded this. I don't know. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> thanks for taking part in it, and uh, we'll talk to you soon, Josh. Yep, I had a great time. Thanks. All right, Dave. So um, we actually have something very exciting that you were going to share with the listeners. We've got a, a contest. Yes, actually. And this is something that Josh himself would have presented, but he's traveling. This was a sort of a travel day for Josh. So um, he's sent it along to us. It's a contest. Basically, we're going to be giving away two collectible Michael Myers pins from artist uh, Travis Falagant's Lost Mysteries collection. Lost Mysteries art uh, has, uh, you know, horror legends like Freddy and Jason drawn into scenes from Scooby-Doo. You've probably already seen these. They're all over the Internet. And we posted some on the, um, you know, Horror Movie Podcast Twitter last Halloween. The pins uh, each feature like a different horror icon. The first one, it's called The Spooky Shape of Haddonfield, has been released. It's nearly sold out. We have two of those to give away, you know, to help promote the release of his next pin, which is uh, going to be in mid-August. And from the looks of it, it's going to, it's uh, ghost-faced inspired, you know, from Scream. Nice. To get into the drawing for the pins, here's what you need to do. One, you can write an iTunes review uh, for a horror movie podcast if you haven't yet. A five-star review is appreciated. <laughs> yes. Uh, or repost our post about Lost Mysteries pin number two that you can find on the official Horror Movie Podcast Twitter or Facebook starting the day this episode releases. So it's either, you know, write an iTunes review yeah. or repost our post about the Lost Mysteries pin number two right. on Twitter or Facebook the day this episode goes out. We have two weeks until the next episode post to write your review or, uh, or repost your you know, preferred social media. Uh, two lucky listeners will be randomly drawn to receive the Michael Myers pin. You know, one or two more will be drawn to receive a Lost Mystery sticker, you know, with the same artwork, the Michael Myers artwork. And if you want to find out more about Lost Mysteries, you can visit it um, on Twitter. It's I-B-T-R-A-V. 
or you can go to the website, which is the same. It's, you know, IBTRAV.com. Yeah, we'll link it in the show notes for this episode. Yep. Okay, so thank you and uh, excellent artwork. It's it, it is interesting. Extremely I was looking cool. at it, you know, before it's it's very cool. Yeah. So before we kind of wrap up this segment here, because I gotta get running, I, I gotta play this hilarious voicemail. I love this guy. Adam is our friend. He's gonna be at the meetup, and I can't wait. Um, Adam and his wife Laura sent us in this little husband and wife voicemail review of "We Are Still Here," and they cracked me up. And Adam has sent a lot of voicemails. And the thing is, at one point, someday, I'm just going to release a full episode of Adam's voicemails because he sends a lot of them and they're really long, but also they're really good. They're very entertaining. So we could actually do a full HMP episode of just Adam's voicemails. I think that would be hilarious one day. But I got to play this one here because his uh, sweet wife, Laura, is there and they're giving us a review of We Are Still Here. So here is Adam and Laura. What's up, guys? Adam from Chicago and Laura. I'm the wife. She's the wife. I want to start this conversation off that Laura remarked the fact that I had you guys saved in my phone. Was that like recent? What was that? You're in the computer and it's on an HFP. Why is that bad? You were like, said, oh my God, there is a This is a good relationship I have with them, okay? Listen. With their voicemail. Yeah, with their voicemail. What the hell? Or talk to you guys. They're supposed to have to meet in September. <laughs> yeah, like Indianapolis or something, or Indiana somewhere. Anyway, that's a whole nother conversation on that. But listen, we're calling because we watched We Are Still Here last night. Um, one of you guys talked about it. It might have been Josh. I don't know. And Laura, what were your thoughts on it? We just started deciphering him for like 20 minutes because... Not in a good way. No, like deciphering to understand what was even happening. And Adam had remarked that like you don't always want to spell everything out for your audience, but this movie definitely did not give enough. So we could like combine our brain power to just figure out what the storyline even really was. Yeah, and now like in a cool like, I'm going to use my imagination but away or I'm like, I just want to know what's happening. So I guess we're going to have to make something up that's somewhat logical. It was shot beautifully and the ghosts were really cool and pretty scary. I have little nitpicks as far as some editing, like the spinning effect when it was like killing the guy in the stairs, which made it seem like time had passed when no time had passed because they were still in the middle of the chaos, which doing that edit slowed down the chaos, little things like that. But um, what would you give it? What would you rate it? How many Dagmars out of 10? Uh, Dagmars is the ghost if you guys, the family ghost you get, remember? I don't know, like a four. Four Dagmars out of 10? I'd probably give it like six and a half Dagmars. Like six Dagmars and like like a little tiny child Dagmar. Mm. Too much? Yeah, I think you're being too nice. I, like I the, think you like the concept too much. That's why you're giving us credit. The concept that I kind of, we had to make up because we Correct. couldn't figure it out? Yeah. Well, that's where we're at. So uh, we'll watch another recommendation and we'll just, we should keep calling back and getting husband away for you. Yeah, you guys don't already get like women on the show. What is that? You and I will be the newcomers via voicemail. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a deal that we've made on our part. No take you back, these tell them. No take you back. Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs> so aren't they just... uh <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, they're like a very um, amusing people. I mm-hmm. I love that Adam guy. I can't wait to like yeah. chat with him in person because very cool. His personality. This is. I hope he f- feels like this is a compliment. I mean it as such. 
his personality reminds me a lot of my personality, my everyday personality. He's kind of cool. kind of silly and right. you know, like me. And um those two together, their dynamic reminds me a lot of the sci-fi podcast dynamic with the uh, you know, station and Metroid. So mm-hmm. they're pretty hilarious, but yeah. yeah. And as far as the movie goes, obviously I liked it considerably more than, than they did, but it, yes. it, and a lot of the confusion, um, I don't know what their, um, uh, experiences with Italian horror movies of the eighties, the Fulci, which is, this is really sort of, uh, paying homage to, um, especially the, you know, the house by the cemetery, um, but if you thought that was a little bit hard to follow, yeah, you might not want to delve too deeply into the Italian horror movies of the early eighties, because <laughs> sometimes you're looking and you're going, what the hell, where the hell did that come from? Now, yeah. you know, the, the scene in the beyond where a librarian falls over and all of a sudden these tarantulas just crawl out of nowhere. Right. Right. You know, you're sort of scratching your head a lot, but I mean, I love them. I mean, I love the early eighties uh, Italian films, but yeah, if, if you had a little bit of a problem with this one, that that's what that's and I don't, I'm not saying that's necessarily um, what their complaint was. And that's what they were doing, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in that early on. But yeah, if you're not familiar with them, you might not want to spend too much time watching right. those early 80s uh, Italian movies either, because they're going to be even more perplexing. I'm with you. Well, I, I'm, I'm grateful for uh, their voicemail. I love it that they called in and. Um, that was super nice. It was great to hear from Adam and Laura. And Dr. Shock, it was nice of you to come back like a few hours later in the show like this to do the outro oh, with No me. problem. I, I was sitting here patiently. I know. I just was in the waiting room. <laughs> I was just waiting for you to call me in. That's right. That's right. So I think that wraps up, finally, episode 94 of Horror Movie Podcast. We thank everyone for joining us. And um, I just want people to check out Movie Podcast Weekly, episode 200 which should be out around about this time, and it is quite good, if I do say so myself. We have a good time on there, so if you like uh, crazy rapport among hosts, then um, definitely give it a listen. We also, you know, I do a little review of Lights Out on there as well. So anyway, Dr. Shark, what are your plugs for the listeners? Same as always, uh, dvdinfatuation.com, now the blog. Um, uh, at DVD Infatuation on Twitter, I have a Facebook page as well, and uh, check me out on uh, with uh, Greg Amortis. Uh, and on this most recent episode over Land of the Creeps, it's Greg Amortis and, and Jesse Robbins. Um, and we're discussing, we're finally got into the 1930s. We're looking at the older films, we're, we're going up through the classics, and the first two we talked about in the 30s were uh, The Most Dangerous Game and Island of Lost Souls. Awesome. Yeah, well, and that'll be linked in the show notes as well for Land of the Creeps. And um, make sure you check out our friends uh, Matroid and Station and Kill Bill Kill and Wolfman Josh over at the Sci-Fi Podcast. And um, actually, Josh is called Space Wolf over there. Uh-huh. And, and then you can follow Josh on Twitter at Icarus Arts. And he also has his own little movie podcast called Movie Streamcast. So check that out as well. We love your comments, so make sure you get involved in the Horror Movie Podcast community. You can leave us a comment in the show notes or email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com or just leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789. You can find all our episodes, including the weekly Horror Movie Podcast and Horror Metropolis on our website at horrormoviepodcast.com. You can subscribe free in iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Horror Movie Cast. 
I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. That'll be linked in the show notes for this episode. And I think that's it for episode 94. We thank you for listening, and you can join us again Friday after next for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. <laughs>